Howdy, folks. WidgetWalls from NeedCoffee.com here. Listen, uh, I hate to start things on a down note, but I did want to uh, give you two notes on this episode before you listen, uh, because the episode, I think, will make more sense if you have this knowledge. Um, we had some technical difficulties while recording this episode. You can still hear the first nine or ten minutes in which Tuffley and Rob inexplicably sound slightly robotic. Um, that was fixed after that first recording section. Um and we proceeded along a pace. However, uh, due to that and some other problems, the editing and posting of this episode was quite delayed. Uh, so I do apologize for that. There are two bits of information that have uh, since come to light since then. Um, the first is the death of MCA, which had not happened at the time that we recorded this. So in case you're wondering why we didn't address it, it's because it had not happened yet. So we'll be uh, talking about that in the 30th episode of the soundboard, the next one that we record. Um, also, we do make mention of the fact that at the time we recorded this, Robin Gibb had actually improved somewhat in his condition. But in the last, I think, 24 hours or so, as I'm recording this note to the episode, um, he has since sadly passed away. Uh, so just to bring you up to speed, in case you're wondering what we're talking about or why we're not talking about something. Uh, it's at the time we recorded that it had not happened yet. So again, hate to start on a down note, but I did want to make you guys aware of what the shot was uh, in case you were wondering. Uh, regardless, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading this podcast and we hope you enjoy this 29th episode of the soundboard. Let me get the agenda. Okay. Got it. We ready? Yes. Hello everyone. And welcome to the soundboard. Yes. The soundboard. We're back. It's a, another fun edition of the Soundboard, the music podcast associated with needcoffee.com. And uh, thank you for your time. I'm Rob Levy. I am uh, driving the show this week, so God help you all. And uh, I am joined by the esteemed members of the Soundboard. Uh, first of all, the head honcho, chief bottle washer, and writer of books and all sorts of fun things. Mr. Widget Walls, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm glad that I think last episode I was the writer of uh, the backs of cereal boxes. So, uh, <laughs> Hey, it's better than writing obituaries. That's true. You've been upgraded. Yay! Yes. And uh, also joining us, the one, the only, the legendary other music minister for dcoffee.com, Mr. J.M. Tuffley. How are you, sir? I'm legendary for being the other. Hi, I'm good. Well, no, it's, it's not an other. It's sort of a... The other. Yeah. No, I like so, that. It's in, it's, in, uh, it's in quotation marks. The other. Well, I would have the other two in quotation marks, so it's not... You can be the other next time. Well, no, I didn't want to think that it was a disparity. <laughs> Are you guys fighting over being the other? You can both be the other. You're both... It, well, it's a team okay? effort. I was trying to take away the, you know, any presuppositions that any one sum of the parts of the soundboard is greater than the other, because that's not true. Ah, okay. So, um, that's what I was careful to avoid. So I was told there would be no math during this podcast. Seriously. There will, uh, if at all possible, there will not be any math at all. <laughs> However, we will have um, legal issues. We will have uh, our own sort of um, what the fuck moments, and we will also have um, miracles of modern science. So all of that uh, in this edition of uh, the soundboard. So I guess we'll start off with, um, you know, it's April. And uh, which means we always have April showers. We did not plan on that refer, you know, referring to April as April showers, meaning they would be raining death upon the whole podcast. And we don't want to certainly start that off. But normally, every one of these, we have one or two people who have passed that we sort of take note on and uh, move on to our, our larger topic. But 
this month has been particularly harsh, and we'll get to some of that in a minute, but I guess the upside to this is we were, you know, getting ready to do the podcast and stuff, and we kind of much, kind of pretty much figured that when we heard Robin Gibb uh, from the Bee Gees was in a coma, that we'd have to pretty much add him to the list of people we'd have to talk about. And uh, I know I did some certain prep on uh, on that, and I, I think, toughly, I think you did a little bit too, just to sort of find out some cultural reference points of the Bee Gees and stuff, and and that. But now all of that gets put on the back shelf because Robin Gibb has confounded, and and we really use the word confounded sincerely, um, his doctors and medical people, he was in a coma for several days, I think almost a week, and he's woken up. And he's turned the corner and done much better. And that that's actually pretty amazing, because I don't know a whole lot of people that wake up from comas with just like like that and everything's fine. It's kind of interesting. I, so, Tuffley, you want to talk about that? Yes, that is interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, no, it, it, we were we were having actually we were debating this in the agenda whether or not we were going to include Robin Gibb. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and then he came out of the coma and solved it for us. I know, but um, it's very strange. I don't recall this ever actually happening um, to such a large degree before. You know, you just always once you hear somebody's in a coma, you pretty much start thinking the worst in things, and it's kind of um, fascinating. Well, we certainly wish him well, and we're glad that that's the case, but it's it's pretty remarkable. I don't really have any um, remembrances of times past when this sort of thing has happened, so it really is medically interesting. I know there's an article on CNN you sent around where they talked to different people about it, and they, I think to a certain extent, they, they're, they're still trying to figure out what was even wrong that caused it, and also what's making him wake up, which is kind uh, of interesting. Now, I, this was cancer-related, correct? Yeah. Okay, because uh, I'd been reading something that Maurice had um, twisted bowels. Was that what yeah. that was? Okay. So they were they were wondering if that uh, the question had come up if that it had something to do with what Maurice had had, but no, that was different. So it really is kind of fascinating. Um, so that kind of puts the optimistic spin on everything uh, because we've I mean we've taken a pretty big hit this month. I guess I'll start the ball rolling. Uh, with our with our roll call of death, which we hate to refer to it at that, but it kind of fits. Um, earlier this week, we lost Levon Helm of the band, and I am not the biggest person to necessarily speak on this. I, I did a lot of research on him because I haven't listened to a whole lot of the band's music, uh, which is terribly painful to have to admit, but I just, I just haven't. I've always appreciated Robbie Robertson, but I've never sort of bothered to really go deep into the, into the band. But he... Um, I completely forgot he was an actor as well. He was in um, a couple movies. He was in the sh- I think the last movie he was in was that Mark Wahlberg film, Shooter. And then he was also in The Right Stuff, which I thought was kind of interesting. But um, LeVon Helm was 71. He was the drummer of the band, and he also sang for the band. And basically his career in music spanned 40 years. So he did the band. Um, he was in the band. He also was in... Um, on the recording of Bob Dylan's basement tapes with the fellow other musicians from the band. And that sort of, they spun off from, from, from Dylan recording with Dylan to become their own band. Yeah. And, because they were his backing band for a while. Yeah. And I thought that was, I thought that, you know, if you're going to have a way to start a band, being Bob Dylan's backing band is probably not a bad way to just sort of go. Now, um, were they the backing band when he went electric or was that shortly yeah, I after? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. No, I think it was when he went electric. 
Now, he also, what I did not know, he won, he had three albums that won Grammys, uh, Dirt Farmer, um, Electric Dirt, and then um, Round Table, um, Rumble at the Round, uh, Rumble at the Ryman, which uh, won in 2011 uh, uh, for a Grammy, and he didn't actually come to the, the ceremony for that. Um, but what's interesting about him is late in life, he did these sort of uh, concerts. He had his own band of people that would come and go, and he'd perform as the Levon Helm, Helm, uh, Helm Band. But he also had these concerts at his farm. He had a farm with a barn in Woodstock. So he had all these sessions come and just record and play records and or, uh, play songs with them. And they'd be sort of like these little, I think, sort of mini music festivals, sort of Elvis Costello and all kinds of uh, Chris Christopherson, and people like that would just come out to his farm. They'd sell tickets. They'd go, everybody would go sit in his barn and watch people play. So in many ways, before Perry Farrell was doing Lollapalooza, he's doing a sort of mini festival on his own property for like 20 to 25 years. And it's kind of that part of his life I thought was really kind of interesting. Um, but he's one of these people that I should probably know more about. But he's important worth mentioning because he had a 40-year run in music, which is for any artist in any type of band to make a survival living in the industry for 40 years, between being a band, a solo artist, a promoter, and all that. That's a pretty extraordinary feat, I think. Well, it helped that he that, that he could play drums and, and, and do vocals. Yeah. And um, the other interesting thing, uh, footnote about him dying, is that the rift between him and Robbie Robertson with the band – um, was pretty substantial. Robbie Robertson controlled most of the catalog um, and publishing rights for the band. And Helm was the guy who held out. So he couldn't really do much with the last 20%. And even until he died, he still owned that 20% of their catalog and their publishing rights and things. And he wouldn't give in. And they had a very, very, very tumultuous and nasty fallout. It's all you know bands that have been around forever. They had those things. But I, well, the nice, happy ending to this is that uh, Robbie Robertson, of course, heard that the end was coming very quickly, made an effort to go to the hospital, and apparently spent most of a day with him, and that when he passed, um, those two had sort of aired all their differences and had a very sort of moment of zen uh, musically. And I think it's nice when you get that uh, as a happy ending for a story, because you always hear these stories where, like, a band breaks up, it's vicious, and they go one of one or the other or both or people in the band go to their graves hating each other. And this kind of has a nice happy ending, which I think is sort of a nice little exclamation point on a solid career of someone who's in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So also earlier in the month, uh, we lost bluegrass and banjo legend Earl Scruggs. Uh, he was 88 and lived a very in, amazing life, you would think, for a bluegrass musician. You may not expect that, but um, probably one of the most significant music figures uh, to have died this year. Um, it was interesting. Earl Scruggs was discovered in 1945 by Bill Monroe, who was looking for a new banjo player. And basically, when he teamed up um, with Lester Flat, it pretty it was a, it was pretty much like when Lennon met McCartney for bluegrass. Um, and you know, we probably don't have a whole lot of bluegrass segments on the soundboard, but uh, this guy is is the big deal. If you've heard the Beverly Hillbillies theme. Uh, although him and uh, Lester Flatt do not sing on it, they play that. Probably everyone has heard somewhere in time um, his music without realizing it. If you've seen any films related to bluegrass music or if you've heard uh, uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, for example, that's their classic as well. But uh, Bill Monroe uh, once called uh, 
once said he was the best three-fingered banjo player he ever saw. So Earl Scruggs died, just a huge icon, uh, not only in bluegrass music, but in, in music. Um, you, you would be hard-pressed to say this, but he pretty much set the standard for banjo players and people contemporaries now of, of the instrument, which I can't even believe, you know, we're, we're going to say this, but we're serious. People like Steve Martin, for example, who is known for being an exceptional uh, bluegrass musician, sort of learned everything they did from Earl Scruggs. So it's kind of interesting that this guy um, sort of set the, set the boundaries. His uh, banjo can also be heard in Bonnie and Clyde. If you've seen that film with Warren Beatty, it's uh, pretty much the standard background. All of the, banjo playing in Bonnie and Clyde is Earl Scruggs. So it's a pretty huge loss uh, for that type of music. And um, yeah, just wondering what you guys uh, thought of that. Well, well my, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, fine. Um, well, no, I, I was just going to say I was, uh, uh, per, you know, peripherally aware of the same stuff that you were talking about, Fog Mountain Breakdown and the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. And, and I just, I find it, um, uh, interesting that that you went to Steve Martin for that. Whereas when you were talking about banjo players, of course, I was thinking about you know, Bela Fleck and probably Les Claypool, and you went to Steve Martin. So yeah, I was I was racking my in. brain trying to think of other famous banjo players, and I completely lost it, which is embarrassing. <laughs> oh no, Steve Martin qualifies. Steve Martin qualifies. So yeah, and I, I and I like I know more names, and they're not there. But I knew that one of you two guys would pick it up. Oh. So. And I completely forget about Les Claypool with the banjo, which is embarrassing. So I apologize. No, 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 no. He's 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 the bass guy. He just happens to ever so often break it out and mess with your head. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, tough. I didn't mean to jump in. Go ahead. Actually, you said what I was going to say. So <laughs> there you go. But have either of you guys heard a lot? I mean, I don't listen to tons of bluegrass. Right. My real interest in bluegrass, to be fair, started pretty much with the Coen Brother movies. Who pretty much took the music put it in their films and made it sort of a household thing for people to listen to. I, mean, I, I want to say he was, he was a consultant on that film. Yeah, I think he was too. Um, but, you know, I've learned to really appreciate him. And I, I, I mean, pretty much I love flat. A lot of the flat and scrug stuff is just really, really incredible. Just not just because necessarily of the musicality of it and the way that it sounds, but just in terms of, probably more so than a lot of other musical forms. The timing is really everything. And, and the improvisation is really interesting because you have at most three or four, maybe five musicians and you're together and you just sort of have to know when to do chord changes, when to change things and when to sort of lay back and let the other guy come in. And you watch those guys play and it just looks so effortless. I mean, that's the thing that when I watch him play, it was just, it, he didn't even look like he was, having to work at it. He looked like, well, first of all, it looked like he was having fun, but he didn't look like it was any, any sweat. He's like, okay, I pick up my banjo and I'm playing boom done, which I thought was, was really kind of an interesting thing for a musician. You don't see a whole lot of that anymore. Um, and I also was surprised. I, mean, I knew he was popular, but I had spoken to a friend of mine in Nashville, who's a, a music writer and Earl Scruggs funeral had 2,300 people at it, and it shut down parts of the city for the better part of the day, which I thought was pretty damn cool because, um, as I always say on the Soundboard podcast, you know, we're losing all these great old musicians, and a lot of times when they go, they don't get the recognition they deserve. And that, I think, is pretty damn awesome. 
So, but I mean, have you have you guys heard a lot of his his other stuff? Sort of, or we were kind of like me, where was like sort of on the periphery of hearing it. Yeah, and, apart from apart from what I already mentioned, uh, no. But I mean, it's again, it's a sort of genre of music that I haven't really delved into. Yeah, not, me neither. Not from, yeah. not from any, you know, because I don't like it. Because again, with the, like the O Brother soundtrack, which I thought was the best part of that film. I mean, I just I love that stuff. Um, yeah. But I just, you know, it's, I I just have not delved. And hey, and thanks I, to Spotify, I probably can now. Well, I can't. You know, the thing is, I don't listen to a whole lot of it. But it's interesting that like I didn't even know bluegrass was a genre until someone told me because uh, I just listened to them sort of. And, uh, so what do you think of country? And, well, a lot of bluegrass and a lot of country to me. I just sort of, just yeah. sort of unfairly probably lumped a lot of it together, and I just didn't really bother to to like it, or not to like it, but to to classify it. You know. Yeah. Um, I sort of first heard him play with Earl Flat. Sort of like I was listening to a lot of punk and post punk, and somebody said you really need to listen to this, and. I could really appreciate the timing and the and the musicality of it, but it wasn't something I'd pull out every day. So, yeah. Having said that, though, uh, honestly, honestly, though, Beverly Hillbillies on TBS during Ra- Braves rain delays, yeah, is where is where I actually first discovered his stuff. <laughs> and what's what's interesting, you know, at least, and, and that, that's the thing is every they did the largest um, number of people ever playing a banjo in the same place during a Braves game. Yeah. And and he was there for it. So a lot of people know his music and haven't heard it, but people forget that between you know the, the Bonnie and Clyde movie, the Beverly Hillbillies, and Oh Brother, that probably did more for getting – if every musical artist had those three things propel their career – you know, in terms of just getting their music out there. I mean, that's that's pretty damn good. In the age when that type of music wasn't getting a lot of press, a lot of PR, the Beverly Hillbillies was absolutely huge for them. I mean, the Ballad of Jed Clampett, which is the song for the Beverly Hillbillies, absolutely was probably, at the time, it's probably since then gone away, but arguably one of the biggest TV themes ever. And he could play that at a show and people would like love it, you know. Um I would people... say probably the highest selling I and I don't know I don't have a stat about this, but I would probably say that's probably the the highest selling, at least on Pop Charts theme song, up until I guess the Friends the the Remembrance, the Friends thing. The Rembrandt. Yeah. That that's a good point. But yeah, Earl Scruggs greatly, greatly missed. And I know we talked a little bit about him on uh, Weekend Justice, but greatly missed. And we encourage you just a little bit. You may not listen to a lot of bluegrass, and I don't. I mean, I'm woefully ignorant on the subject of bluegrass music. Um, but make it a point to try to pull out some of their records and listen to them because they're 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 pretty remarkable. But you know, it's not something you need to hear every day. Just sort of familiarize it with a little bit. Um, we won't give you a test or anything, but just. Uh, Make it a point to listen to him. You'll really appreciate, you know, Earl Scruggs as a musician. Okay. As if the world was not a weird enough place already. Axel Rose, the often mentioned about Axel Rose here on the soundboard. Um, as we know, Guns N' Roses were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I think it was last week. But uh, Axel Rose sent a letter to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before this saying at the last minute that he's sorry he's not coming and he doesn't want to be inducted and basically screw you. So what the hell? <laughs> I guess that's sort of the the short 
fast and painless way to introduce the topic of uh, Axl Rose's latest sort of bout of weirdness. And um, let's well, just take that from there. Well, when we mentioned this about three or four months ago, when we were talking about the inductions. I actually, I actually kind of called this, but it's kind of like calling water being wet. So to be honest, that's not much of a prediction, but uh, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as very odd. This actually doesn't strike me as very odd because Axel really doesn't want anything to do with that version of Guns N' Roses. He seems to be genuinely happy with the version of the band he has and no one else is. That's the strange thing. But yeah, I think to a certain extent, what's interesting about this is that to those of us who sort of, you know, talk about music a lot or like music, this is not at all surprising, but I kind of like the fact that like, I use the word mundane America on that's not really fair, but there's a lot of people that were just caught completely off guard by this, which, you know, I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't want to be inducted into the rock, rock and roll hall of fame. And even if you're Axl Rose and you hate slash, you know, you still have to look at that as your legacy as a musician. You still have to look at that as that is what gave you everything you've mostly got right now. And at least have some shred of appreciation for it. But it's interesting because he he cares about it enough to keep the name and tour on the name with a bunch of session players, but he doesn't care enough about it to show up for the perhaps the single greatest honor he's probably ever going to get in his life. You know, um, I don't know because at least to me, Guns N' Roses going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a band, their strength was not necessarily their singer. At least to me, I mean, I think and- that. And to be very fair, they're going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for essentially three albums. Yeah. I mean, I cry bullshit on putting them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but we've, that's a whole other yeah. show that we've had a couple shows ago. But come on, really? Technically, only one album. Well, well, hang on. So let me just let me get this straight, because I, I I was I was looking this up because I hadn't been following it because I kind of try to not follow what a lot of crazy people do being crazy myself i have enough crazy in my own head but um it's the coffee yeah i know he was he was saying that he has questions about the hall yes that he was saying he doesn't understand what it is how it makes money why it makes money where the money goes who who votes who so he has all of these questions basically everything that we basically according to the letter he asks himself every question that we ask every year they come out with nominations apparently yeah okay but but let me just say toughly and i i don't want to speak for you two guys but i think no, if, if, if if collectively as the soundboard there was some way that despite our misgivings about the rock and roll hall of fame we were going to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame i think we'd shut up long enough to get in wouldn't we i mean we're we're not we're not dumb Right, we're not stupid. We, we, well, if it, we well, if it gives me voting out. privileges, sure. I oh well, exactly. See, <laughs> if I don't get to vote, I'm fuck just them. saying. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's there there's there's you gotta you gotta do something. I mean, there's there's ways to get questions uh, answered besides just you know bitching and moaning. So yeah. Although, and I remember this, Rob. Do you remember? And and this the the letter Axel pulled up. Um, they republished actually the letter the Sex Pistols sent out when they didn't show up. Yeah, which I thought was which reminded me of oh yeah they did that. Yeah, but see to me that makes but sense. But you expect I mean, the Sex Pistols not to show up. 
I kind of, yeah, I would kind of say, okay, the Sex Pistols, when I heard they got inducted, they're not going to show up. They're not going to play. They could care less. And it's sort of, they sort of, you know, did it when they, when it sounds weird to say this upon hindsight, when they snubbed the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it didn't seem like they were being pretentious dicks about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't seem like it was like, they didn't seem crazy. They just seemed like, look, this is what we don't like about it. And they also did it early enough. They got nominated. They said they were going in. And like right after they said they got going in, they sent the letter. Yeah. Right. Axl Rose does this a week. And I think within a week and a half of going in where you had what, three friggin' months, you know, and I, and I have to wonder as much as we've all mentioned our hesitations about the process of, you know, rock and roll hall of fame, using the word rock and roll is kind of a banner for saying the popular music hall of fame. I get that. I'm mm. fine with the branding on it. Yeah. I get it. It's not great. I don't love it, but I basically understand that you're basically putting soul blues, jazz, and every type of other music through a fucking grinder and calling it rock. I get it. That's and fine. Rock, I don't love strangely, it. But... Strangely, because in part going back to Dick Clark, because of Dick Clark, Rock and roll is actually more marketable than just saying music. Yeah. And it, it also it also de-emphasizes it enough where somebody can go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who may hate Motown music, but then they see Smokey Robinson and they discover it. You know, I'm yeah. fine with that. At the end of the day, that doesn't bother me. But my point is they have a website. You go to the website. It tells you their voting process. It tells you the criteria. It tells you their mission statement. Did he read the website? Now, now you're making a huge assumption that Axl Rose knows how to work the World Wide Web. I mean, I know he's on Twitter, but I mean, come on. I mean, I know I don't know how. I'm not the sharpest computer guy in the fucking yeah. world either. But before I, again, if we all got invited to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, before I even sent a letter bitching about the things that I wouldn't like about being inject, in, in, you know, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would at least sort of try to find the answers to the questions before I asked them. You know, although it might be interesting to be injected into the Hall of Fame like a virus, that'd be fun. Yeah, I was kind of yeah, that's kind of what I was going for because with him, it, it almost seemed like an injection rather than an induction. It almost seemed like he didn't want to go in. It, it almost, I mean, in the same way that Johnny Johnny Rotten saw it as like, this is an embarrassment to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We have no business being here. And I think a lot of it with Leiden is that he recognized the musical heritage of it. And it's like you know, I mean, I, I, I've heard him say, you know, like. Do the Sex Pistols really need to be in the same museum with Jackie Wilson and Otis Redding and Elvis? You know, musically, are we on that level? I don't. None of us thought we were on that level. That's part of the reason why we didn't want to go in, right? And I can respect that as an answer. But Axel's was never. We don't deserve to be here. We've put out three albums. It's a sham. It was first of all all about him. Second, it was kind of like I don't get this, you know, but. Easily, a lot of the stuff in his letter, I think, could have been handled with a very long phone conversation with somebody at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, you notice you notice the clause in the letter that says, "Do not by my non by my do not induct me for not being there," yeah. basically, and don't my non participation or having my name involved with that version of Guns N' Roses does not mean that I approve of the. Adu- Basically, what he was saying was, if I understand it correctly, even if you induct the band anyway and I'm not there, it's you're not really inducting the band. Yeah. Well, it's we kind of a he, dick move. 
Well, he's, he he's thinks he with... is Guns N' Roses. I mean, I think in his head, he thinks that that band's complete success is on him. Is how I'm reading that letter. And, and can I can I just throw out that it, it sounds like from what you guys are describing, uh, and for what, I, what I've read about this letter, it's basically like a callback to ICP, where he's saying Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, fucking Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to a certain extent, but it's also, I mean, as 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 much as I don't love some of the things about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I genuinely think that its mission and it being there is probably a good thing. I mean, there needs to be a cultural resting house for the for the for this heritage of of music, you know. Um, and I generally think that at the end of the day, they try to do good work. I mean, the interesting thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that they do outreach programming. And some other things that a lot of people let slip under the map. You know, they're not a bunch of guys in suits that sit there and just count their money and don't try to do anything. It's a little different than that. I have problems with, like, the criteria for putting who does and doesn't go in and who does and doesn't uh, get represented and how they market it. But any other type of Hall of Fame, I would feel the same way about. If you were to ask Tuffley and I who we thought should and shouldn't be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame every year, we'd probably bring up a lot of the same points. Except, you know, the Sports Hall of Fame were all broken down by their ideal sports. And it probably isn't great to have a Soul Hall of Fame, a Blues Hall of Fame, a Jazz Hall of Fame, and a Rock Hall of Fame. That's probably too complicated and too weird. So lumping it under the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame banner is fine. I get it. But first of all, you're only Axl Rose. Dude, you don't fucking matter. I mean, it's the the first Guns N' Roses record is great. Yes, his voice is an important part of that band, but a band is only as good as the sum of its parts. And even bands that went in notoriously hating each other have even admitted, yeah, I needed this guy or I needed that guy to really make this work. And I almost think, is this, is this whole thing because... He is just too much of an egomaniac prick and, and, and so insecure that he can't be in the same room with the rest of the band. Is he that scared of being on stage with Slash that he does this? I mean, I have, to, I have to wonder that, you know? It's like, am I getting a teacher's note to get out of class so I don't have to see the bully? You know, is, is that what this is? You know? now, now, to play devil's advocate, I wonder, did we find out why Rod Stewart no-showed? He was working on something. Okay. Um, because there was, I, you know, they mentioned this in one of the articles. He had been quoted right up until the no-show saying, yeah, I'm going to be there. Yeah, he was going to be there. He didn't show. He had... Um, I can't remember if it was the birth of one of his kids or there was some family thing. But when I read the article about Axl Rose, there was an article in there. Rod Stewart also didn't show up, but he yeah, when Rod Stewart was conducted as a solo artist. He didn't come because of the earthquakes. Yeah, that was it. It was because of the earthquakes. But he sent a letter the time he didn't come in advance, congratulating him. Yeah. And he also, you know, he also made it very abundantly clear that his intentions by not coming were not hostile or yeah, you know, and I think I think the big but thing about this letter out, is I never did find out why he didn't show up last week for the faces. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he kept saying he was going to show up. Yeah, and it made so, it, it very easily could have been something. I mean, and it may be out there, but I haven't. I can't speak on it because I haven't read it. Yeah. But um, illness, it says. Uh, oh, was sick. Okay. Okay. 
But I mean, that letter is pretty damn venomous. I mean, he had had been basically saying, I missed the first one. I kind of wanted to come to this one. Yeah. Um, And I know that I, I, I had heard that he had actually spoken to the people in the faces as well, right up until the induction, you know? So, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, I didn't necessarily get get along with these guys. We had a really sharp breakup. But for this instance, we're going to we're going to put aside our differences and we're going to go in and this is going to be a positive thing because it's an honor to be here. There's a way to handle it and a way not to handle it, you know, and if I'm not going to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, I'm certainly not going to blow up the bridge behind me, you know, by not, you know, by saying I don't want to go in. I'm not just I, I would just say, look, I don't want to be in. Here's why I wouldn't write this like letter that's basically just, you know, a big fuck you to everybody. You know, he easily could have wrote that letter saying, you know, I don't agree with your with the, with the way you let people in. I don't necessarily agree with this. Yeah. Thank you. You know, and, it, had, you it, know it could have been a very short thing. But the more he went on, the more damage yeah. he did. And, and and also to be fair to Axel, because he was talking about damned if I do, damned if I don't, which honestly, yeah. we all remember the Blondie incident from a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, where the two guys who aren't current, who weren't currently in Blondie, basically asked Debbie Harry if they could play with them during their performance, and she she said on stage, "No." Yeah. While they were supposed to be accepting the award, they asked if they could play with, and she said, "No." <laughs> so you don't want to be Blondie, and you don't want to be Van Halen, who the people who showed up are the people that aren't in the band anymore. Yeah. Uh, or, or Hagar and Michael Anthony, which, again, you can kind of argue, well, okay. But, and which, ironically, if I recall correctly, Velvet Revolver performed the songs of Van Halen, uh, yeah. which, <laughs> which is the slash connection there. I mean, the whole thing is just asinine. It's just, but, you know, the the one thing that Axl Rose did manage to do is Axl Rose managed to get people that care less about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame than notice it. He gave them a shitload of free advertising. Yeah. You know? And he gave another singer a shitload of... He may have given a whole other singer a career now. Yeah, because the guy from Alter... I was kind of impressed by the guy from Alter Bridge. Who knew? I wasn't expecting it to be sounding as good as it did, but you know what? Um, so be it's it. Amazing you know? what, then, it's amazing what good singers can do when they're away from their shitty bands. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, and it was kind of fitting too that having somebody else sing the songs of Guns N' Roses sort of de-emphasized the importance of Axl Rose in that band. Yeah, it sort of, you know, um, to me, I think it'd been more detrimental if Slash didn't come because, I mean, to someone who's casually listened to Guns N' Roses records, the one hallmark I can tell that I know is a Guns N' Roses record is the guitar, and you know, and on those classic records. Here's here's the other achievement that Axel has managed to pull off for this year's inductions is that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were the only band that managed to show up. Yeah, that's what you've done, Axel. Thank well, you. Well, one of the one of the Beastie Boys was sick, I think. I think yeah. Adam Mouch was sick. Well, yeah. I, yeah, but that's what I was basically basically Axel made it possible for the Chili Peppers to be the band that shows up. Yeah. Thank you, Axel. <laughs> I mean, I get. I mean, listen, I, I, listen. I, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You should have voted for the Cure. That's all I'm saying. I applaud the. Well, that would have been a whole other mess too. I applaud the, him for you know voicing his concerns and for asking the questions that lots of other people want to ask. However, 
dude, it's yeah. not like you've got, I mean, he could have used this to completely reinvent his career. Well, Rob, L- Rob let, me, let me expand on that for a second to say, okay. to say, Axel, we, again, not wanting to speak for my colleagues directly, but I, but I think I can safely say that while, while we agree with your questions and your concerns, please don't be on our side. Because you make us look like fucking morons. Yeah. Please. Just go. I know. <laughs> you know, and I have, always, I have always thought that any type of an endeavor that involves uh, a band is definitely a group effort. You know, it is not just, a, it's the sum of the parts, really. You know, as in many ways with the soundboard, it's there's three distinct voices all coming into one area that make it what it is. In the dynamic of Guns N' Roses, there's all these different voices doing what they do and making it sound distinctive like Guns N' Roses. Also drugs. What now? Also drugs. Well, yeah. Um, (laughs) Kids, don't do drugs. But... (laughs) Don't do drugs because then you'll try start writing letters. And when and it's like that commercial, to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's like that. It's like it's literally, it's literally it's like that commercial. Don't do drugs. When you do drugs, don't write letters. When you're drunk and you do drug uh, drugs, don't write letters to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When you're drunk, do drugs and write letters to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Don't do. I mean, it's literally like that commercial. <laughs> A like, series of bad choices. Yeah, it's just, I think we can all agree, and I hope, hopefully we won't have to bring up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for quite a while now. Um, At least until August. Yeah, but it's it's just, huh. it's so, this whole thing is just like, I just wanted to shake him and go, dude, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, even if you hate the guy, show up, because then even your catalog sales will jump if you show up. So what he's managed to do now is... People would have said, oh, Guns N' Roses, I'm going to go out and buy their records. Or a bunch of new kids would have said, Guns N' Roses, I'm going to go buy their records. He would have made money off the back catalog. You don't have to fucking like them to make money. You don't have to like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to have money. You've eliminated the ability to use the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I guarantee you, if I disagreed with going in and I got inducted, I'd find a way to use it to my advantage. And he completely didn't even do that. You know, I He didn't even turn it into the tongue. Like, if we got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... It would be used in some tongue-in-cheek sort of fun way with us that we'd have fun with, right? He couldn't even do that. Well, again, Rob, you're you're assuming that he has, just like we assume that he can use the Internet properly, you're assuming he has even his own best interests at heart. Which, but he's got to have a handler. I mean, Jesus. Does he? <laughs> I, I don't know. The handler's but, I mean, quitting every four to five weeks. Fuck this. I can't. Rob, Rob, so, it, it it did actually take them what seventeen years to do to do another album. So yeah, you that's know. true. It, yeah. it, it literally I, is. It sounds like for a handler working with Axl Rose, it's the equivalent of me with my dog Cora. No, 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 don't eat that. That'll kill you. No, no, don't go over. No, don't run out into traffic. No, what do you? No, what do you get? Get down from there. You're going to electrocute yourself. No, <laughs> I mean that. That to me would be Axl Rose's handler. Yeah. So the interesting. I, thing- I'm imagining Dave from Album and the Chipmunks. <laughs> that's funny now the sad thing is you're as, welcome internet uh the sad thing is as bizarre and weird as the and crazy as the axel rose thing is that's not the craziest story of the week oh, God. oh no um we talked about this a little bit on, on, on the soundboard but courtney love 
who is in a parallel universe is somehow married to Axl Rose. Um, oh God. Courtney Love. No comic. That's what they are. Twittered on, on her Twitter account that she was offended and irritated and pissed off that Dave Grohl was hitting on Francis Bean Cobain, her 19 year old daughter, which anyone who read it, when I first read this, I'm like, all right, does she have a record coming out or what the fuck is this? And then Dave Grohl, of course, denies it. Um, and says Francis it's in, Bean, in bad of course, taste. Denies and denies it. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're getting to that part, but to, to put this in context, um, Courtney Love believes that Dave Grohl has unfairly taken money from Nirvana, unfairly abused the legacy of Nirvana, and pretty much used Nirvana to heighten his own career for his own games, right? Um, Which is Chris Novoselic, on the other hand, has said nothing on this subject and has not voiced any concerns of any wrongdoing by, by Dave Grohl. And last I heard, he doesn't really need any more money. So that's sort of the context of where her mind is when she says this, right? right. She's like, well, Dave Grohl is a horrible person. He hit on my 19-year-old daughter. Just basically throws every insidious thing you could throw associated with that into it. Then a couple of days later, you know, Dave Grohl denies it. Then a couple of days later, Francis Bean, Francis Bean Cobain comes on Twitter and says, they really need to ban my mother. She's crazy, in a nutshell. you know." And she, then she says, I've never known Dave Grohl in anything other, other than a platonic and paternal way. And pretty much expresses her sense of embarrassment over the whole thing. And Mentioned also, I am currently in a relationship. Thank well, you. Yeah. And, and let me also point out that she, uh, I, I looked this up on Hollywood Reporter, and she began her statement, which was issued through the Foo Fighters publicity firm, um, with the phrase, while I'm generally silent on the affairs of my biological mother. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a happy family. No. I mean, I I, no. I get the impression that there's Dave Grohl and Francis Dean Cobain and then Chris Novoselic on one side, and then they all sort of don't want – Courtney Love is the crazy woman in the room, you know? And she sold 20% of her stake in the band a couple of years ago, and she's trying to sell the rest, I think, of her stake in Nirvana because she views it as, like, cursed, you know? Yeah, and she keeps wondering why things that she didn't approve shows up. Like, uh, the rock, uh, no, it wasn't the rock band, but the Guitar Hero thing. Yeah. Remember the Guitar Hero thing from a couple of years ago? Where yeah. There was a, there was, it wasn't necessarily a bug, but it mm -hmm. was a feature in one of the guitar bands, uh, one of the uh, guitar bands, where you could actually have Kurt singing pop songs. Yeah. But, you know. Where you could have Kurt singing Culture Club, which, by the way, if you've ever tried it, it's very cool. But <laughs> oh, toughly! Ow! You really want to hurt me? Uh. Ow! I mean, you could argue that she was the most self-destructive thing about Nirvana, right? And there are people that love Nirvana that blame her for everything that's happened, and you always have a hard time believing any of that type of stuff until she does. Stupid shit like this. I mean, this probably could be our moment of crazy for the year. It really could. Um, well, here's the thing. A lot of people accused her of being Yoko for uh, yeah. for Nirvana. I seem to recall Yoko was sane. Yeah, Yoko was, Yoko was sane. Um, and <laughs> and I, I don't think that, uh, you know. <laughs> I, and I well, Yoko had a band, but that right? was different. 
Yeah, and 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 Yoko had never been mentioned in you know as a possible contributor to someone killing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, the other thing too that's interesting to sort of put this in context is that <laughs> Courtney Love was really offended that she that um, that Dave Gold quote unquote raped Smells Like Teen Spirit by having it put in the Muppet movie that just came out. Um, and that she just thought that that was like the end of civilization as she knew it, you know, um, and that was 24 hours of love actually on MTV too. And, uh, really <laughs> 1999. <laughs> nice. Uh, oh, 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 oh. that was the end of society as we knew it. It was also the end of MTV too. But you know, um, again, is even, even if, um, uh, Courtney Love has any ever says anything on Twitter that has an semblance of truth about it. She's cried wolf so many times now, no one's ever going to believe her. And that's, that's really kind of tragic. Um, and she's alienated, you know, her, I mean, she's not going to win mom of the year. I can tell you that now, but I mean, the thing is, is that this thing is really, I mean, I, the upside to this is that when she said it, nobody really took it seriously enough that there was any damage, but this really could have, um, almost a, in a lot of cases, this is the kind of shit that gets a lot of uh, people in a lot of trouble. And the the fact that Dave Roll sort of just let this be water under the bridge and didn't he responded, but he didn't dignify himself into turning this into an all out dogfight is really shows you what it's like when you have a good handler or a good team in place to run your shit as a band. Um, because I, he's gotten no negative bounce off of this at all. I, I, mean, I think when pressed for further comment on this, he, get, he went, listen, I'm trying to record a record. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. And the fact is, is that he's managed to come out of this with a pretty good image. I mean, he had a good image before. And that most general people that you talk to don't, when you say the name Dave Grohl, don't think of anything really illicit or horrible or, uh, you know, lecherous. But when you say the name Courtney Love, it's like it, it, it elicits a whole different response, sadly. So, you know, even if this doesn't turn into a war of words with people, I just have a really hard time imagining that Dave Grohl would have anything to do with hitting on the 19-year-old son, our daughter, of, her, of you know, his right. bandmate. That just seems a little preposterous to me. And I, you just have to wonder if it seems preposterous to me then it's got to feel weird to most other people. Why would she even say that? And that's what I don't understand. It's like she said that, you know, she heard this as a rumor uh, from Francis's roommate, and that's what made her launch into the Twitter thing. And she's since apologized for it. But I think the damage is done. Yeah, oh, it is. I mean, for her. Um, that's not, even if it was true, you don't, you don't air that, you know, in public. Unless you are trying to damage the person that it involves. Yeah. And I think, first of all, she was trying to hurt him. I think she's very, I think she's very much a person who lashes out. And I think she was really trying to cause some level of disturbance. But I also think, you know, sadly, the first thing I thought of is, okay, what is she pushing? What is she trying to get into the limelight here? You know, is there a new whole record? Is there, you know, well, I, I believe in other news, the original lineup of Hole actually reunited for all of 20 minutes. 
Thank you, Kurt Loader. Um, I know. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I don't want to belabor this, but this just seems. When I read this, this seemed like such a. I mean, I don't know if it's more stupid than Axl Rose or not, but it's certainly up there. It's just like this. Come on, what the hell are you thinking? You know, um, because I, t- I, I generally would think that Dave Grohl doesn't give off the persona of being a really slimy enough guy that he would do that. And it's just, I, I just can't even see why you would even want to try to tear down that image because I think he's managed to come through um, his post Nirvana career in, in, in pretty good shape. I mean, the Foo Fighters do a lot of benefits. You know, he's pretty much, I think got a pretty good positive. I mean, John, John would be from the South, uh, from weekend justice would be good to talk to more about, all the different stuff he does, but he seems to have an almost spotless record that is fairly filled with impunity about such things. So why would you even want to call it into content? I just, I can't even fathom why this is even an issue with her. It's just so weird. So the soundboard continues. And, uh, one of the saddest things to have happened in the last month is that we have lost uh, a pioneer of television film and movies, uh, Mr. Dick Clark, who uh, once said that music is the soundtrack of your life. Well, I can argue that no one probably lived that statement more than Dick Clark, who died uh, this this week as well, aged, I believe, how old was he, 72 or 80? Oh, he was, oh, 80, he was right in the 80s, I believe. He was 82, like, yeah. Well, uh, Founder of Dick Clark Productions. Um, he had, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, I grew up sort of in high school, near the end of the of the run of American Bandstand, but he pretty much had a forty year run, uh, thirty eight year run on American Bandstand, and at one point in the nineteen eighties, he was doing Bandstand on ABC, Bloopers on NBC, and then the Pyramid Game Show on CBS. He's one of the few people in American television that had a show on all three networks simultaneously. And um, the interesting thing now about Dick Clark is that. He has managed, thanks to the uh, the Mayans, curse you Mayans, we will not be able to ring in any other New Year now because Dick Clark is gone. Because 40 New Years, Dick Clark and New Year's Eve. So that to me is astounding as well. I just I thought about that. And I'm like, you know, every New Year pretty much that I've been alive, Dick Clark has been there to ring in that New Year, which is incredibly fascinating. Even after he had the stroke, he was still doing um, something, some work on camera. And I, I don't think I can think of a person that really was um, as important to the development of youth culture in our country as Dick Clark. And it's his loss is actually probably really huge. I mean, our generation will realize it, but I don't think a lot of people under us truly realize the magnitude of, of how, how, first of all, how much power this guy had in the industry, and two, just what he did. Uh, um, I read somewhere that like. 10,000 bands played on American Band, over 10,000 bands played on American Bandstand, and that two thirds of the people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And I'm just like, wow. So that kind of sets the tone for Dick Clark a little bit and what his legacy is. But I thought I'd ask you guys to sort of comment on that and uh, discuss that. Well, I, I, I think we've, uh, I, I think we've established on a previous, uh, on a previous show, especially when we were talking about Don Cornelius. Uh, just a couple of months ago, actually, uh, how influential as far as music was concerned that both Bandstand and Soul Train had. Yeah. Um, and um, it's amazing. It's staggering if you start to look back at 
even in the period of time that we were just able to watch Bandstand, uh, just the staggering amount of not just pop bands, um, but just – and let's be honest. Nobody actually performed on Bandstand. They all mimed. But it's it's still – still the same thing as seeing, you know, that's how a lot of us saw bands to begin with. Because uh, a lot of people – this is, again, a Bandstand the, – the impact of Bandstand before MTV uh, cannot be ignored. And uh, it, it's very interesting. You had all sorts of things from like like ABBA to like I, I remember Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson. Uh, I know Kiss had, Kiss sent films. Um, I know uh, the, I posted something actually, uh, and we've talked about this before. The Public Image Limited thing. <laughs> Every time yeah. I think of Bandstand, I think of that 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 Public Image Limited thing. Uh, we, where, do we uh, want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, For those who may not have seen it. Okay, so this was during – It was correct me if I'm wrong. Was this during PIL's first U.S. tour? I believe so, yes. Okay, and this was like – I want to say this was like not terribly long after Lightning had disbanded the Sex Pistols basically. Yeah. And uh, all of this happened – the whole Public Image Limited thing at the end of Sex Pistols happened relatively fast. And um, so they had put out – I know they put out uh, the – I think uh, the, the Metal Box had been released in this country. Was it, was it Metal Box that got re-released the second edition? Yeah. Is that how it worked? Okay. Yeah. So they were on their, uh, their first U.S. tour, um, and somehow they got booked on Bandstand. Um, and Lighten was not a very huge fan of lip syncing. In fact <laughs> – he wasn't very big fan of television or interviews either. Um, so basically the way he got past all of these things is to continually obscure himself from camera, pull the entire American bandstand audience out at certain points of the performance, um, went to one of the upper dance levels that like the upper level things, the yeah. little platforms that they had yeah. the dancers on. And um, at the end of one of the songs, I think it was pop tones. He's up there. Specifically so that Dick Clark cannot interview him. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, wait. There's more. Oh, wait. There's more. So uh, I believe it's careering that they started yeah. where everyone that was remaining seated in the studio audience was told to get up and dance. So basically the entire, the entire, the entire studio audience is now out back on the floor. All of the kids are out on the floor. Um, the band decides to stop trying to play the song and randomly hits instruments. Um, and then uh, Lighten's walking around. Now, is this urban myth? Did he actually, did Lighten actually take a wee on the American yes, he did. set? Okay. Yes, he, did. he goes off camera for like several seconds and <laughs> he comes back right off to the side and he comes back and there's, that's what I thought. There was an urban myth about whether or not he had actually weed on the, uh, the bandstand set. But, um, I, every time I think of bands on Bandstand, that's the one I think of. it. That and yeah. Devo. Well, the Beastie Boys, another great Bandstand story, the Beastie Boys, who also are not fans of lip syncing, just didn't even bother. They held the microphones the wrong way. They jumped around. Um, they were, as by, by, by standards now, probably timid, but as offensive as you could possibly be on American Bandstand. And Dick Clark just looked absolutely mortified when he saw them. You know, Um so he had his good news, his his warts and all with bandstand. I mean, even though it was lip synced, you got what it was pretty spontaneous. 
And the interesting thing about, uh, you know, all these bands performing on bandstand is that he had all these kids dancing to, to records. And, you know, he talked about he put Arthur Murray out of business because all, they didn't have to learn how to do dance lessons. They just watched bandstand. But then he did this thing where, like, kids would rate records, uh, where they play a record and then the kids would rate whether they liked it or not. And that became a huge thing to get labels involved. And then it became more of a powerhouse than it was. So outside of just having a, a forum for bands and then having, you know, teenagers being shown rather clean cut, having fun and dancing. It made, had, it, it made parents, it was, I, I read the statement that it made parents feel more comfortable about their kids listening to rock. Yeah. Whereas at the beginning, um, he was vilified. I mean, he took the brunt for the whole early rock and roll movement because it was seen as lascivious and, and just, you know, demonic. And you know, here's this guy doing a rock and roll show on TV. And he, to be fair, he took a lot of hits um, for early rock and roll. And his personal favorite era, I think, of rock is that sort of early, that 50s, early 60s era. And but he took a hell of a beating from from critics well, and, on that. And, and and going in another direction for a second, am I am I right in remembering that he basically, uh, once he got on the show, desegregated it? Yes. Yes. So I mean that is huge as well. And that not only are you bringing, and also book black performers. Yeah, you know, that, you know, that's what I mean. I mean black performers and black you know uh, folks in the Kids. audience to yeah. basically to to basically you know bring to America. I mean, not only are you showing here's here's kids dancing and they're not, you know, sacrificing a goat or something. And here's here's rock. And look, it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. But, oh, look, here's white folks and, de- and black folks together. And hey, the world's not ending. What a weird world we live in. I mean, that yeah. I mean, so many huge things came out of American Bandstand uh, that I mean, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that his his. Um, his legacy cannot be understated at all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's huge. Now, what's interesting about Dick Clark is that there is, along with all of this, there is some, some interesting stuff. Um, he was one of the first figures to be truly investigated for payola. And when they did this in the 60s, he invested a lot of his early money in bandstand into record labels and publishing rights. And he was never found guilty, but it sort of changed the rule of, you know, look, you know, even if you're not guilty, you can't put, you know, Diana Ross on American Bandstand if you own 30% of the label, you know, stuff like that. It's sort of, so he's, you know, he sold all of his stock once he did that. But it, there was, a, he had like a lot of big controversies that I think were thrust upon him based on his level of exposure. I mean, he had the payola issue, uh, which is one. He was notoriously ruthless as a businessman, meaning that part of the reason why they lip sank on bandstand is that he wouldn't have to necessarily deal with stagehands, stage crews, setting everything up. But his bottom line is on it. Well, artistically, the bands look better if they lip sync because there's no screw ups. Uh, There's less stuff for people to trip over. It's a cleaner presentation and it's easier to market and advertise it if they lip sync. And he took a lot of flack for that, Uh, but he totally got the concept of a package and a lot of people have said, well, you know, he desegregated Bandstand because from a business point of view, it was good. But you have to look at it. And he had an advertising degree from Syracuse. He wasn't, he wasn't stupid. He pretty much realized that he was taking and building a youth culture, pretty much. I mean, he was into the music. He was sincere about what he was doing. About what he was doing. But he also 
knew that you know if you put the bands on TV and you don't mic them, they can't say anything stupid and controversial, and that you can't have you will you it'll, it'll be more cost effective, and then you can do more with the show with the kids dancing, and he broadened it out. But even with his business dealings, he had a lot of controversy that followed him around. I don't necessarily think that when you criticize Dick Clark, saying that he was ruthless in business, if that's the least you can say, I mean, everybody who's ran a major label or who's been somewhat of a major business person in rock and roll, from the Colonel all the way through Barry Gordy, you know, all the way through you know David Geffen and Clive Davis, he has to have a certain degree of ruthlessness and sort of an efficiency of how they run things. So I don't necessarily – I mean I want to bring those up just to sort of present both sides of the argument, but I don't think in this instance it takes away from the legacy of what he did, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Um, it does. But the fact that he weathered the payola storm was pretty interesting um, because the the thing is about Bandstand is probably from the onset of when it started in the 50s, probably through the mid-60s, it was under a lot of fire uh, with – People, you know, like you said, Rich, people were afraid that it represented drug culture or that, oh, my God, he's putting you know, mixed audiences on TV. And he did a lot of things that really were anti-establishment, but without trying to be. I mean, he's just like he threw out the teleprompter when he talked to the kids. He was just kind of like, um, you know, hey, here's a band. I like them. Here's who they are. Here they're from. And he interviewed the bands for their segments and it came off very genuine and sincere. And that could threaten a lot of people because he wasn't. As much as he controlled everything that happened with Bandstand from the image, the marketing, and the presentation, it felt very natural and very loose. And in many ways, I think it even influenced the reality shows of today because it was, it was very formulaic. It was very normal and scripted and planned, but also spontaneous, which I think is because of an interesting dualism for Bandstand. And, you know, he loved music. I mean – he he once said you know he had when he had Elvis on bandstand it was a huge deal, but he once um, I I read this week that the biggest regret that he had about bandstand was that apparently he tried like all hell to get the Beatles on when they were in the states um, for their sixty three sixty four tour and he couldn't get them, and it wasn't that they didn't want to do it it was just logistically it didn't happen and that was his biggest regret that you know i didn't get the i didn't get the beatles on you know and he sort of went to his grave feeling that he let people down because he didn't have the beatles on american bandstand it's like and I think, wow if i recall correctly wasn't that because he had, they had just moved bandstand to la yeah out of and, and and the beatles were only touring the east coast yeah so i mean that's always kind of interesting um but over the years, I seem to recall. Now they did send. Uh, now Bandstand did get the uh, get the uh, what was it? The um, one of the uh, one of the early Beatles videos. Yeah, and they got. I mean, they got taken care of. I mean, at the time, I think it was you, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was the first one they had. The first film they had done. Yeah, the first and, just promotional film they had done, which was like the early early video. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Dick Clark is that. Outside of the whole Dick Clark productions, I mean, the fact that he had a restaurant chain and sort of took this youth, this youth culture and packaged it into a chain of restaurants, and I think that in itself is fa- it's fascinating. The fact that the probably the only person that rivals him in the history of television for power may have been Merv Griffin, 
Um, mm. But to show you how much power he had, you know, there's this really great story that, you know, there was a lull in the 60s, and he went to Mark Boland and he said, you know, America does not have a teen idol right now. It really needs one. The show needs one. We really need a teen idol. You'd be great for it. And Mark Boland just basically walked away from him, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, but the, the, the amount of bands that were on and his legacy on television and music is astounding because before there was any sort of charts and before there was any emphasis on like new media or anything – pretty much the best way for you to promote your band was on the American Bandstand. And you might have heard of band's records or their 45s or their singles, but you never got to see them. And you didn't really feel like you saw or knew a band until you saw them on American Bandstand. You know, And that was kind of how it was for over 20 years, is that pretty much if you wanted your band promoted and if you wanted your band uh, to sell tickets on tour, you had to put them on American Bandstand. And that is a huge amount of power to wield when you think about and- it. Yeah, and I hadn't noticed this because I started looking this up the last couple of days. But I believe Run DMC debuted on that show. Yes, television debut was Run, Run DMC's television debut was on Bandstand. Yeah, and um, you know he was also one of the few people too that when uh, hip hop came around, he was one of the few people that said, you know, look, this is just a new thing. It is, you know, people were saying it's not related to rock and roll. He goes, well, there are roots in rock and roll. This relates to slow, slow down, everybody. Slow your ride. It's going to be fine. I mean, the amount of music that he liked. I mean, he was he booked, probably... He booked Rapbacks on Bandstand when Don Cornelius would not book Rapbacks on Soul Train. Yeah. And, I mean, part of that was that he knew it was good business. Don't get me wrong. But I genuinely think that he liked the records. I mean, he had an incredible sense for timing. I mean, he's all, he knew when the next big thing was going to be and knew when to pounce on it and get it on the show, which... It's kind of like, you know, if we all hear a really great record and we like and we want everyone to know about it, we 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 have all these things that are, are resources to do it. We can post them on our Facebook or on our Twitter or whatever. But literally, he would just hear a record and then, boom, make a phone call. And he made or break a lot of careers. You know, the first time I think um, – I think Bowie, when he was on Bandstand, was huge too. I mean, a lot of these people that started out in – especially – particularly in the 80s when all the British bands were coming over with the British New Wave – and trying to get over here, having Culture Club and Duran Duran on American Bandstand was a huge boost for those record sales and for those A&R people. And it's just, it's pretty astounding. I mean, the the fact that this guy ran such a huge empire for 40 years, a financially sound one even, is pretty incredible. Now, I read earlier this week about just some of the things that he had in his private collection of memorabilia, that in and of itself is a whole separate soundboard discussion. But, you know, I wish John Lennon would just give me a guitar for a birthday present, you know, or Fred Astaire would give me a pair of shoes. I mean, uh, the amount of stuff, like this family's trying to figure out what they're going to do with it. I think most of it's going to go to the Smithsonian. You know, they may open a, uh, a separate museum for him. But the other important thing that he did is he sort of established in people a sense of that you have to appreciate the music before the stuff you like now. So, like, if he would have Elvis on, he made it a point to have Elvis talk about, you know, the country and the blues stuff he listened to. And sort of he tried very much to connect the dots so that everybody sort of felt communal in the the way music worked. I mean, what he did for Barry Manilow, what he did for Diana Ross and all these other people, he gave them a forum they would not have had. And it's really interesting the amount of diversity that that show had. When you sort of look at Bandstand now, you're like, 
holy shit, he had a lot of people on that show. I mean, I'd watch it growing up just to sort of see who was on, but you, you had no idea what the power of that show was. I mean, it's incredibly fascinating, and it sort of set the mold for the other variety shows that followed, I think. so. Well, and, and let me just throw out here that I think it would be, uh, I mean, as, as much fun as it was to ring in the new year with him, um, uh, you know, for years and years and years, uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of younger people today, that's all they know him from is, oh, he's that guy who had a stroke and is still ringing in the new year on television. Yeah. So I would urge anybody uh, who thinks that's the extent of what's going on, or if you know someone who does, set them down in front of YouTube because that's what they understand, these kids, and get some, some classic Dick Clark bits and, and show them. So that yeah. they so they have an appreciation for uh, for you know the history of, of what yeah. he means to uh, to them so that it makes yeah. sense to them. Mm-hmm. He was also an incredibly good game show host too. I mean, yes. his diversity yeah. was great. The other thing too, I think that Dick Clark did that's not getting as much play is he made when he was the, I think the very first guy that was a radio DJ that transitioned to TV. So I think all these MTV people. Would not have made it had Dick Clark not done that. Before, not only, not only that, but he introduced Ed McMahon to Johnny Carson. Holy really? Shit, I did not know that. Yes, he introduced Ed McMahon to Johnny Carson. Wow! Damn. Okay, so I mean, I think that you can look at the history of music, American music, and American youth culture over the last five decades, and I just think that his hands are all over it. Um. The twist never would have been, for example, a huge record if it wasn't for American Bandstand, which you might laugh and say, the twist, yeah, that, you know, but that was a huge friggin' record when that record came out. I mean, it was huge. I mean, he made or break records. I mean, he even played records that he personally didn't like, but sometimes he met the artist and they thought they were really, he, they were really nice, so he'd put them on the show. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's, you hate to use the word, it's like, you know, he, he was kind of like pretty much the czar of, of ran the show for what got her in scene. And Bandstand, in terms of youth culture, influenced what people dressed like, what they wore, what they listened to, how they acted. People would actually watch, all the, all the kids that were unpopular, if they wanted to become popular, they'd watch Bandstand and learn how to dress and do it. It sort of set the template for... American teen culture. And a lot of people had a problem with that. And he constantly was getting a lot of, a lot of scrutiny for it. But I think, you know, as we, as we wind down talking about Dick Clark a little bit, just like Wood said, watch some of his clips. Um, think about your favorite music show on television or the concept of music on television and realize that somewhere the fingerprints of that are on Dick Clark. Now, Dick Clark Productions, amongst the other things that they did, creating, you know, $25,000 pyramid, they did every type of TV show except, for example, I think soap operas. But one of the other things they did is that if you had a TV show, like which, you have a TV show and you're getting it made, right? You don't know what God, music to go into. They would call Dick Clark or Dick Clark Productions and he would find a music or a song to put in your 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 project. And oftentimes... Um, for example, when they wanted to get the Doobie Brothers to be on What's Happening, you know, you'd call Dick Clark and to make that happen, which is pretty pretty incredible. 
I mean, just to have that kind of resource and that kind of pull, you know, if I were to go into Dick Clark's office right now and have to take one thing from like this whole room full of cool, I'd grab the Rolodex, <laughs> you know, because um, you have to imagine what that Rolodex is like. I mean, you'd have to imagine, you know, so, but I think it's safe to say as we wind down um, Dick Clark that we've lost probably one of the most significant musical figures of the last, you know, five decades, probably as big in, in completely different ways, as big as a Lennon or as big as an Elvis, um, but in a completely different way. Um, and his career is actually remarkable. I mean, you can't really go on the internet and just cruise his career with a cursory glance without somehow being surprised or just awed or even dumbstruck. I mean, I was, profoundly dumbstruck when I was like researching this, just how much stuff he did. I mean, my God, the man just, his legacy is incredible. So um, I think that's a nice tribute to him is that we could just say that this guy pretty much shaped American pop culture for the last five decades. And that's, that's huge. Indeed. Moving on, you know, it would not be another fun and fact filled edition of the soundboard if it wasn't for a story about litigation, all right, every every one of these podcasts, for some reason, we have a uh, completely unscripted development in the world of music litigation, and this month is no con, uh, no different. Um, Lynch first told me about this, which I thought was pretty intriguing. Weird Al Yankovic, um, who you instantly think of on the same level of lawyers when you think of Weird Al Yankovic, has uh, sued Sony Records, his former label, for $5 million in back royalties, saying that uh, Sony pretty much illegally duplicated his recouping of of money from online and uh, download music sales. And he believes that uh, they've taken pretty much most of the more money than they should have. And what it basically says in the suit is like, look, you had downloadable sales. This is how much you made. My contract says 50-50. You're taking more than 50. Pay up. That's it in a nutshell. Weird Al Yankovic, though, uh, going to show up in court and everything. So, I mean, I, uh, people I see in my head, angry and in court, Weird Al Yankovic is not one of them in my mind until now. So, gentlemen, what do we think of this? Well, well is this oh, – okay, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Tubby. Um, Well, then you've seen this kind of thing pop up. Uh, the last couple of years, we've been talking about this. Yeah. Uh, there was the Eminem suit that basically pretty much blew the doors open for this sort of thing. That basically said um, there wasn't because they didn't make deals for this originally in record contracts. They didn't make deals for uh, for digital sales to the point that you know it, you didn't have the clause where it said, "Well, we can license your music or what have you electronically." Um, and, and that it did not count the same as actual record sales. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the kind of, and you're going to see more of this with people who, uh, are either onto their own deals or you're going to see more of this with particularly artists from the eighties or late eighties, um, or even classic catalog artists that are going to come out and have these suits out, um, for, you know, for, 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 uh, for not having a digital uh, clause in their in, in their yeah. contracts. So you think that's what this is? You don't think it's someone actually trying to pull pull one over? Um, 
Well, obviously it's a label and if there's a way they can not pay someone money, they 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 yeah. usually try to not pay someone. Yeah. Um but but I think uh, I would think and this is just a guess, but I would think a good bit of uh this suit and a couple of others that are popping up is is basically the fact that no, you didn't have there wasn't an internet when you originally signed the contract. So, you know, these things are coming up, these other sources of revenue are coming yeah. up and you know I, and i think we had seen this with uh, the pink floyd case i think we talked about last year uh where they emi flat out was not paying pink floyd for digital sales at all yeah um and uh they were doing all sorts of things outside of the contract that if this were physical product they could never do like break up the albums or that sort of thing and as crazy as i thought i i thought as preposterous as I kind of thought that was and a bit overblown, I could kind of see the point because if they hadn't can't break up stuff on albums, you shouldn't be able to do the same thing with the same material online. So I think that this is part and parcel of that. Well, the other thing that's interesting, I was just looking at the article on billboard is that apparently he's also saying that he should be due part of the settlement that they got out of stuff like uh, Napster and Grokster and stuff like that. Yeah, because that that would be considered, you know, income that he should be getting some of, and which they said was for artists when they originally made of that. Course, of course, they did. Yeah. Um, and also what I thought was interesting was apparently Sony did a deal with YouTube to get an equity stake in YouTube in return for providing them with content. And so since they, for example, they used the white and nerdy video as an, as an example, um, that was incredibly popular that some part of that equity should be due to weird al because of the way the deal works 50 50 so um i i i think it's fascinating it 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 looks like that um uh i mean i mean toughly hit the nail on the head they're a label if there's a way they can get out of paying somebody that's what they're going to do and it just appears that weird al is calling them on it yeah and Weird Al seems to be a guy who pretty much watches everything with his business with great care, I would seem to think. I mean, just by the attention that he puts to his records, to his music and his videos and sort of – he gets the whole idea of a package. He's not a guy that if I were in, in court, I would think you know, you could probably slip one by pretty easily. I mean, he's got an architecture degree. He's not – he's not a knucklehead. So – I'm kind of surprised they didn't try to pull this past him, you know, but again, I mean, I bring this up because definitely mentioned that we see this happening again and again and again. And it's kind of interesting to note that uh, these issues keep happening. So anything else on, on Weird Al before we move on? Uh, I hope he takes one of the cleaners. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Cause he, he's totally, totally earned it. So. And uh, this is the time of the soundboard each and every year where we sort of stop and reflect and look back upon the phenomenon that has become Record Store Day, uh, which was held this past weekend. Record Store Day was originally designed to sort of celebrate the importance of the independent record store and make people stop and say, hey, I know there's Amazon. I know I can download music. The record store, going to the record store is a pretty cool thing. So all over the country and uh, in England as well. I think you know, the UK one is next week, uh, the week after we record this. 
Yeah, but they uh, they do all kinds of cool record store day things where they get people to have bands play or they have sort of, you know, a celebration of the record store by having exclusive release tracks and things like that. So I just thought we'd sort of just touch base briefly on the state of record store day. And uh, I know I went. Tuffley, did you do anything for, for record store day? Yes, I actually did go to a record store, record store day. It's the weird record store day that actually did not fall on my wedding anniversary because I normally don't get to go. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because I ended up buying uh, basically a bunch of comics and a couple of T-shirts. <laughs> See, mine was somewhat similar in that I, I got other things than the record store day stuff. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was – a little different because this is the first year I've sort of jumped into buying releases. Yeah. Um, and really quickly, I bought the School of Seven Bell 7-inch where they do a cover of the uh, Susie and the Banshees Kiss Them for me. Um, and again, the thing I didn't think I was going to be able to get because, again, they do all these special releases, but not every store has them. So uh, some stores will have one thing and some – like there's a Leonard Cohen EP. Not every store got them that some stores did some didn't there's a flaming lips thing some stores had it some didn't so you, you kind of have a crap you got the flaming lips kesha thing didn't you no i didn't get that <laughs> um there's a live devo record for example from 1981 there's an arcade fire single there's all kinds of stuff that sort of you didn't know which what, what, depending on the store and what they got it's a crapshoot so i was very excited because i got the regina specter seven inch uh with her singing two bulat songs in russian Oh, and, okay. Yeah, and that voice of hers works just as well in Russian as it does in English, and actually, it's pretty damn cool. It's my favorite thing so far that I got, and I got the complete uh, Billy Bragg and Wilco Mermaid Avenue sessions with the two albums and then an extra an extra disc of outtakes. Um, and there's all kinds of just – there's an Arctic Monkey single I got that was cool. There's all kinds of really cool things that they do for Record Store Day. There's a 3B Corporation – uh, double 12 inch and they do things like etched vinyl and just all sorts of things to make the day special different stores will do djs they'll have bands play they'll do uh everything else one place i i went to had uh this is the part where we make widge cringe they had stag beer on ice what yes they serve stag beer in cups with ice in it what is stag beer have you ever had stag beer I thought everyone had stag beer. Is this from the House of Baratheon? What? No, stag oh. beer is perhaps the worst beer ever known to man. Oh, okay. Um, you can just look it up and read the review. Yeah, it is It is the um, – wow, I don't even know how to say it. It, it is what – Tyler, what Tyler Perry is to Sidney Poitier is what stag beer is to your favorite beer. Oh, wow. Wow. So okay. – yeah, but so it's it's kind of turned into a couple different things that I want to touch upon here before we move on to our big topic. And the first is that, yes, in many ways, it's still a chance for people that really like all kinds of music to come together and have their moment. Um, it's also the time when people that are crazy batshit about records go out and buy things. Although, as crazy batshit as I am about buying records, I'm very still judicious with, with what I get. But then it's also turned this dark corner where people go in and just grab, like, you know, insane numbers of every record they can get and then just run home, not even knowing what they have, and putting it all on eBay. 
Um, this year they did an interesting thing where you could only buy one copy of each thing. So like if Widge went and bought, you know, a Fishbone 7 inch, he couldn't buy two. Even if he wanted to buy one for me because he knew I couldn't get one, they wouldn't let him buy two. So they're, they're, they are taking some measures where, where they didn't last year to sort of curb this spree that happens. Um, but I guess the, the thing I want to bring up is, you know, as again, we, we asked last year, is Record Store Day still relevant and does it still matter? It does feel a bit like comic stores in the 90s that were saying, hey, we're relevant. No, you're yeah. not. It just has that feel to it. I guess it depends on the store, though. It depends on your shops, though. But yeah. and even in, even in the case of like Criminal here, it's sort of like, well, yes, but they do other things now. It's not just a record store. They sell comics and they sell T-shirts and they sell all sorts of stuff. So, you know, it, it sort of I guess it does depend on the store and whether or not it feels exploitive or not. Um. Because like I say, like I say, I mean, like with Criminal, they'll invite bands out and they'll book a whole day of bands. So, you know, in addition, it's 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 getting you to come to the store, which is yeah. the idea of the whole day. It's not just about, oh, hey, we have exclusive records that have numbered stamping on them and foil up gatefold covers and things like that, like spawn number one. But, you know, it, it, I guess it does kind of depend on the store. And yeah. the experience you have at that store, it's sort of, so I guess, so I guess, I, yeah, I guess it would depend on what the, the store we're talking about. Yeah. But I mean, for me, it's interesting because this is the first year I actually almost came to blows in one of these things. And, you know, people are so fiendishly in tune with the collectability aspect of it, that the meaning I think is lost, um, which is why it's so punk rock that you went and just bought t-shirts and, and comics. But, like, I had a copy of the Regina Spectre 7 inch in my hand. I'm walking to the checkout line, and the guy's like, Oh, is that the Regina Spectre record? I go, yeah, it is. And I was talking to him about it, and before I know it, he snatches it, and he's in the checkout line. Now, I can either start a fight with a guy over a fucking record who's twice my size, or I could just eat this and say, This is really stupid. So I was lucky that at night when I went to a different record store, they had it, and I ended up picking one up. But it just sort of made me pause and realize that this whole thing has gotten a little out of hand. I mean, I'm all for the idea of Record Store Day, you know, but in many ways, Record Store Day reminds me of all the reasons why I don't buy music in a record store. I buy a lot of it, if I have to, online through, through you know, for example, Amazon, through the Need Coffee webpage. Um, you can find independent record stores on Amazon that sell their records or that sell imports, but it, it's why I deal with rough trade or it's why I buy, you know, from the band's website to begin with is because not necessarily the store it's moved from having the record store, give you a shitty record experience to the people that are collectors that are giving you the shitty record experience that reminds you why you're buying records online. Um, so in a way, this sort of exclusivity, I think, is hurting the day. Um, I don't know how it was for you at Criminal, but did you have to wait in a line, or was there like was there like crazy amounts of people there? I actually, actually, this year I didn't go to Criminal. I know, I know what okay. usually happens at Criminal because uh, because I I don't normally get to go because, as I say, it coincides with my wedding anniversary. Yeah, we said shirts case. and comics, so I made the mistake of instantly thinking that's where you went. So I apologize. No, um, I actually went to, and I'll give him a shout out. I believe it's called Rock Shop, and it's at the Mall of Georgia. 
Um, they were actually very cool. And uh, it's a very small store. Um, but uh, I decided to go over there because I just happened to be in that neck of the woods. And I suddenly remembered, oh, yeah, it's record store day. And I normally don't get to do this. So I went over there and they had just sold out of everything that I wanted. But I still uh, I still got a couple of comics and a couple of T-shirts from them. But, and they uh, sell music there, too? And they sell they they sell a little bit of music. They have a rack of CDs and they have like a big rack of vinyl uh, that they usually huh. have. But uh, but uh, half the store is like T-shirts, uh, a little bit of its comics, and then they have like vinyl and stuff in there okay. as well. So I went to a smaller store actually, so I did not go to Criminal. Um, but uh, uh, but normally I would I would try to go to Criminal if it did not fall on my anniversary. Yeah, because I would mention, to be fair, I didn't go to Criminal. I went to a couple small places here, and I I got literally everything I, I wanted on the list, which was nice. But yeah, I was standing in line. I waited an hour to get in, and um, it's times like this you really appreciate the women in your lives. Because <laughs> I waited an hour to get in and get all this stuff. And I got, you know, I got some stuff for people for presents that, uh, that, that I can give for Christmas and things. But... There was a girl behind me when I got near because they roped it off and it took you a while. You know, they you pretty much had to go through a line and go through the stuff and then leave. And there's a girl behind me, and she's like, "Can I move up four spots and be in front of you?" And I said, "Well, no. Why?" And she's like sobbing. She's like, "They only have a handful of copies of that new Fish record, and I'm never going to see it again." And I'm just like, "Really? Really? You know, come on." So. You know, I ended you up going. Didn't let her advance in line because you were a snob about being fish. I was like, no, no, no. What I ended up doing is, I'm like, I'll go through the line. If I still see one, I will just grab one and hand it to you. So that is what I did. Because if I let her in line and she gets 15 other things, I'm screwed. So I just handed it to her, and that was it. But okay. I'm like, wow. If you care that much, you know, there comes a point as as much as we all love our popular culture that you have to have a disconnect. I just say, you can't get everything. And in a way, I've learned that, you know, if I don't get everything, I'll be able to find it on the Internet some point in time somehow. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't. Because um, wasn't it last year that uh, Blur released the uh, the single? Yes. After like the Monday after Record Store Day, Blur and Radiohead released their singles anyway. Yeah. And released them as free downloads. Yeah, and this year they made it a point to list on the Record Store Day site what stuff was coming out later. Yeah. So, like, th they would say some of it is this is exclusive Record Store Day, and this is exclusive Record Day stuff of advanced copies of early releases. Yeah. Or, you know, things. And, you know, you and I both like to collect things, but I think we're both somewhat sensible about it. Um, but I'm sure that we all look, you and I particularly in many ways, look bizarrely strange the people like Widge that mostly don't have to deal with going to the record store um, because they found other avenues or they're just too busy. So I'm kind of interested, Widge, on your on your feedback on this. Um, but it just sort of seems like the intention of Record Store Day has been completely co-opted again, but by a whole different level than it was before, um, where we talked about last year. So I was kind of curious, is, you know, does this even – something that registers on your on your level of hey this might be cool i want to go or not well i mean my take on it is that you're or, rob you're relating the story of of you know the same reason we're about to get into about you know live music is that 
Um, there's a reason why the internet works so well, and that's because you don't have to deal with people. Um, <laughs> and, and you don't have to deal with scarcity. And I think part of the thing is that, yeah, I mean, the fact that you have to go hunt around at particular stores and you're maybe not going to get what you want to get. And I don't know about you, but, but I don't always, if I've, if I've got my heart set on something like, you know, one of these years when they had the, if I'd felt like going, it would have been for that them crooked vultures, um, vinyl that they had put out one time. Uh, you know, my take is if, if I had gone and not gotten that, that wouldn't have necessarily made me want to browse, you know, yeah. I would have felt like, well, damn, I got out of my house. I drove down here. Gas is four bucks a gallon, and I got here, and I didn't even get what I wanted. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's why I don't shop at brick-and-mortar stores anymore, you know? Yeah. So to me, I mean, all it's doing is uh, it's it's fomenting unrest, it would seem to me. It's uh, X-Force okay. number one with the domino card in it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well played. Wow. <laughs> Damn. That's better than my uh, Tyler Perry thing. <laughs> so but, but, yeah, yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of Record Store Day. I still enjoy the communal experience of talking to people I meet about records. Because, I mean, I, t I talked to some people that, you know, were passionate about the stuff they were getting. And I'm like, really? You know, what is this? Who are these guys? What is, you know, I learned a lot about bands I'd never heard of before or just why people like particular things. And that part of it, I really, I sort of like that. When it goes right, that organic feel of community, much like you would get back in the day at a comic store when you meet someone that likes the same stuff you do and you hear them talk about, you know, a particular thing. It's like, oh, I don't really like that, but I'm interested in, you know, why you do and stuff. That part of it is nice. And there's a lot of really nice, good people that go to record store just to buy records, which yeah. is pretty cool. But at the same time, I almost feel like, there's a guy in a corporate office at a major record label just laughing, you know, saying, oh, look at look at all the sheep, you know, and I sort of feel that way with it. I sort of feel like, you know, it's sort of the, yeah, we're going to pull this shit out for you to have to like, you know, like you said, spend all the money on gas and drive. We're going to send little bastards on a, on a goose chase, you know, that part of it kind of bothers me. Um, and the the part of it where, it where people get so worked up about it that it's the end of the world, that bothers me. But again, I think Record Store Day um, is good if it's in the context of you also have the the record, the brick-and-mortar store you go to. It's also good the other 364 days you go to it. Uh, the one I go to, you know, I go in a couple times a week just to look around. I by no means buy everything when I go in, but I go in just to look around mostly for old catalog stuff, you know, just to see what they have or whatever, or just to see you know, what's out there, you know, or just to see, like, a lot of the times, I don't know what the artwork of the album covers look like, you know, live and in person, because they look, sometimes they look different than they do online. So, if you really want to celebrate Record Store Day, just have people go to the record store and have a good time, and not necessarily have the releases. I think you'd have just as much of a good Record Store Day if they were just, like, sort of open houses for all the stores, and they had bands, and they had DJs, and they just had a sale, and you know, the record that you normally would pay 30, if you're normally, if you pay $39 for the Pink Floyd reissues, mark them down to 20 or something, you know, that to me would make it much more interesting, but the more you make it exclusive and hard to get, the less I'm interested in, you know, I didn't stand in line because I had to get these five records. Um, you know, I stood in line because I was kind of curious. Well, one, actually, the real reason I went is that a really good friend of mine was DJing, who never DJs, and I wanted to support him because he's been really cool for me. That was my main reason for going. 
And outside of that, I, I was really curious sort of to the people's buying habits and seeing what was interesting and not interesting for what people were getting. So for me, it was probably much more of a sociological experiment of going to record store day than it was, you know, great. So, if they got these four records I want, I'll buy them. If not, I'm going home. I'm living my life. So, so, could, we, so could we suggest a sociological experiment very quickly to our listeners? Sure. Although I'm worried about this, but yes. Okay, so if you went to Record Store Day, here's here's a, here's a thing you can try. If you went to Record Store Day and you only go to that store during Record Store Day, go back on a normal day and yeah. tell us what your experience is. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's disingenuous for a record store to have shitty customer service like every day of the year except Record Store Day, and then all of a sudden yeah. they're really nice to me. That pisses me off, you know? And I think... Which makes a very valid point in that why do you want to expose yourself to going to a record store where sometimes people judge you by what you buy? Not that, you know, uh, yeah, it's, you know, if I go in there and they judge me by what I buy, it's a big jumble of fuck because they don't know what the hell to do. Because, you know, the amount of just bizarre shit I buy, and then I buy normal stuff and weird stuff. I mean, anyone that's going into a record store completely throws the bell curve out the window. So, but again, it's just you know you're dressing up you're dressing up the windows for one day, and I don't necessarily think that's great. Um, but I like the idea of having an independent record store around. I don't buy as much on in a store as I do anymore. A lot of that is the effect that you know knowing Wage has had, where it's kind of like you know you don't have to leave your house to find everything. You know you know you can find it cheaper if you dig around online. I mean, a lot of that I've learned from different people I've known. Uh, do this but so so basically what we've determined here is the problem with record store day is like hell other people sometimes it can be yeah the, but the problem is the hell used to be uh well the, the hell is one is the hell the labels that are making all this exclusive crap to make you feel like you have to buy all this stuff and sort of making you run run through hoops to buy stuff you shouldn't have to do because I think the market should be completely open and everything should be able to buy whatever the hell they want. Then is the hell the really annoying people that just gobble everything up that have no interest in buying shit they don't want? Or is the hell, you know, the people that you stand in line next to that are having really horrible music taste, you know? But, I mean, I stood in line with people that have nothing in common with what I like musically and had some really great music conversations with them, which was great. Um, and when they asked what I liked, I completely confounded them, and they just looked at me, you know, like I was from Mars, which was awesome, you know. But I think that Record Store Day should just kind of – they need to sort of stop and look at what it is, uh, the people that organize it. And I think there's – I think now there's an umbrella group that runs it and, and then just sort of liaisons out to all the stores. But I think they need to stop and look at it and think about – you know, what are the messages we're sending? What do we want to do? And maybe do some sort of update on Record Store Day. You know, there, who says there can't be an online component to Record Store Day where, like, you know, if you live in some part of the country where going to a record store takes you longer than 20 minutes to drive, you should be able to buy some of that stuff online. You know, I mean, come on. Or, or have a mechanism a that puts you in touch with the local independent record store of your choice. Yeah. Uh, that could be anywhere, and you can just buy stuff from them. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think in many ways, while the intentions are good, my general thought on it is that it needs to be better, and it's sort of lost its its meaning. That's kind of my final say on it. Um, Tuffley, do you have one too? 
Um, I, I was going to let the X Force thing with the domino card kind of kind of be mine, but no, well, that's, that's, I, that's not I a bad actually, way to go out. I actually, um, and again, I, all I will say is that it does depend on the shop. Um, yeah. It, it does depend on your experience at the shop. I think some it's it's like comic book stores. It's like the really good ones will stand out. Yeah. Uh, and the really good experiences will stand out. And the people who just have free comics in boxes along their front counter, and that's all they do for a free comic book day. Yeah. It's the same theory for record store day. People do the same thing. Yeah. So it, it depends on what, what – it depends on your shop and it depends on the experience. But, yeah, yeah you've got a point. And, uh, Widge, before we move on to our other big topic, which will be full of good experiences as well, I'm sure, <laughs> um, do you have anything about Record Store Day? No, I mean, that's it. I, I agree with you. I think they need to reassess and, and and establish what they're trying to accomplish and then see if what they're doing actually conforms yeah. to their own desires. I mean, I, I would yeah. I would think they need to reassess it. And for the love of God, don't let the people that write the rules of how to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have anything to do with Record Store Day. All right, so moving on to our big topic, uh, which is all about ticketing concerts and buying tickets. Um, see the course of the soundboards that we've done. We have various times have talked about the funness of seeing live music and uh, seeing a particular artist and then having it be such a pain in the ass with trying to buy tickets and all sorts of various things. We've, we've touched upon this, but we've never really looked at uh, the experience of buying a ticket to shows. And it's it's kind of interesting, and I, I thought of this as a main topic because I was buying tickets for a particular concert, and big surprise, it was a pain in the ass. Now, I don't buy, to be to be perfectly fair and disclose things, because I have a radio show, I don't have to get tickets for as much stuff as probably most people, so I really shouldn't be bitching about this. Um, but and yes. I had to buy... But no, but but to be fair, I think though that when you do buy a ticket for something you, across the board, I'm buying it or not, it should be easy. Um, the the place I went to to buy tickets, which I might add was a Live Nation venue, um, he stood in line. I got all the way there, uh, got in. I was lucky. I brought a copy of the seating chart to, of the arena with me, um, and I'd looked at it before to sort of figure out where the seating was because I didn't have all the sections memorized. I get to uh, inside the door after waiting in line. And they're like, I'm, you know, I called uh, the person I was going to go to the concert with to say, okay, I'm in. Where do you want to sit? And a, a big, huge guy comes up and's like, you know, you can't use your cell phone while you're in here. I said, why not? He goes, we don't like people, you know, buying tickets to be on the phone. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It's a scalping thing, whatever. But I put that back in my head for the beginning of pissed off thing number one. Then I get to the window and I pull out my seating chart and they're like, you can't use a chart. I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, how am I going to buy the tickets? And they're like, well, we're going to tell you where the seats are and you're going to decide to buy them. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't work like that. I'm spending $95 for tickets for something. You're going to, I'm buying the tickets where they're available, where I want to sit. So I spent about 20 minutes with the guy going through. No, 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 no. Yes. Okay, great. These will work for, for where we want to go. And he's like, you, you know, I you you shot my 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 timing. I mean, what do you mean? Because we're supposed to spend a certain allotted number of time with each person buying tickets. Normally, they just take you know the first three, one of the first three options we give them, and we move on. And at this point, it just set me into a complete thing of like, wow, buying a ticket has become a cookie cutter 
factory thing. I realized it was moving towards this, but I had no idea that it was so insincerely blatant <laughs> to where they tell me, you know, yeah, basically we just encourage people to buy the first ticket. We basically don't give a shit about your concert experience. We just want you to buy the ticket. We don't care about anything that happens to you after the ticket. And I know Witch has had problems with, you know, when you talk about going to see tickets with Tom Waits and things, but um, it, this seems to be sort of a really unpleasant thing. Unless you're buying a ticket to a show at like your local indie bar that sells, you know, where the bar is within 500 feet of the stage, um, you have a really shitty time trying to buy tickets. And trying to buy tickets online, for example, has also, I think, gotten very bad because they do so many pre-sales, meaning that like if you want to go see a particular artist and he has a fan club pre-sale or they have a deal worked out with a particular credit card, they have a pre-sale, so that by the time you get to the window, half the seats are gone or a particular desired area seat is gone. And then to compound things even worse, they will pull tickets, labels will pull tickets for you know, other sponsors and radio stations in that market. And so, but really, the odds are stacked against you now as a ticket buyer going to a show so much that I, I think it's unwinnable. And I just wanted to sort of bring that up and set the table with all that and let you guys run wild. <laughs> uh, Tuffley, am I going first? <laughs> uh, yeah, you go. Well, my take on it is I. I mean, you're right. The Tom Waits experience was ridiculous um, and was very disheartening because it was Tom's idea um, to basically make buying tickets as uh, convoluted and long and as painful a process as possible. Um, yeah. And uh, my thing is, it's not even just the, the, the first of all, the, the aspect of getting a ticket in a place that actually makes it worthwhile to go see the show um, is almost impossible. Um because to me, if I am so far back that I can't, you know, tell which member of the band is who, then why am I even there? You know, the live experience needs to be something beyond that. So unless I'm going to go see like, you know, I, I think I saw uh, a couple years ago, Fishbone came through and I saw them in a small bar where literally even at the back of the room, you could you had full view of the entire stage. What was that vinyl? What's what's that? Was that vinyl? No, it was. Uh, I want to say it was at Smith's Old Bar. Okay. Upstairs, so it was like it was like a really tiny venue. Um, so it was an awesome place to see them, and uh, so unless it's something like that, I just don't go, even if it's a band that I want to see. Because primarily, if I if I just want to sample them live, I mean, you can go on YouTube. And for the most part, you're going to find for most large bands, you'll, you'll have a, um, you know, a multi-camera, really nice version of something out there for you. Um, if not a decent, uh, I recorded this on my phone type of thing. So you can at least sample it. And for the most part, bands that are so big that you can't get near them, like say Muse, they put out DVDs. So why would I go? You know, again, Rob, to, to speak to your point, why would I put myself through that um, just so that I can be in what is essence the same zip code as a band? So I can hear them playing, and they're so far away that, I, for all I know, it, they're on bandstand and they're lip syncing. I mean, why do I care? All right, Tuffley? <laughs> um, well, 
I, I have a couple of different experiences with this. Um, I really, because I think last year, I think the only major show in a major arena I went to was Foo Fighters. And that was a pretty painless experience. And uh, uh, especially because those people knew what they were doing. So, you know, go them. Um, I am a little annoyed by the whole Ticketmaster thing. Um, it, and that, was that a, like a quota time thing? Yeah. That, that's, that's a new one. Um, because interestingly, uh, and, and which may, which, well, which may not, uh, know, um, but there are a couple of stores around here. You can go to Publix and buy tickets. You can go to like the service desk of like, uh, the grocery store here, Publix, yeah. uh, and, and buy tickets. Um, and and they don't seem to have that time requirement. It's just and usually the person. Yeah, and yeah. It, but it is the person behind the service desk. So it's the same thing as, you know, the same person is going to get you your money order. Or um, sometimes you get a really nice, sweeter, older lady who will just bend over backwards because she sees you buying concert tickets. Yeah. It's the same thing as someone else buying good fruit, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when possible, if you're buying tickets to a large arena, if you can – go to a grocery store or like, you know, a Macy's or something in this particular case, um, the outlets here have swole, have shrunk so much that you almost have to go to the main venue because there's so, unless you live in like okay. a rural area, you can't go, you know, um, to buy that. Like I can go to the grocery store and pay all my bills. I can get a bus pass. I can get a ton of other things that, you know, but if I want to get tickets to a show at, at like the particularly large arena, I can't do it unless I'm going to one, 20 it is 20 miles you know south of where i am to go so i have to, I have to really yeah. go 20 miles just to buy a ticket where i can go you know four miles and stand in line for 30 minutes and not waste the gas so it's a damned if you damned if you don't and that's another thing about the system that irritates me but like you said if you have a Publix, we can go buy tickets that's usually the way to go but anyway i'm yeah. sorry go ahead but no and the other experience that i've had mostly in the last year or so is uh is going to see bands at smaller venues um I think I may have mentioned Variety Playhouse before. I actually kind of enjoy the experience of buying tickets there. Um, That's a great venue. Yeah, and I don't. I actually go through the the Variety Playhouse actually to buy their ticket to buy tickets, and not through Ticketmaster because they have that option. Um, yeah. But they have their own sort of club system where you know you can go and you buy the tickets, and there is a service charge, but it goes. But you know, it goes directly to the venue, which is cool. So. Um, I've done that, um, and I haven't really had a whole lot of problems with that. Um, I will say that the last major show I tried to buy tickets to was uh, Springsteen uh, earlier, I think about uh, two months ago, yeah. when Springsteen went the, the the tour opener that was going to be here. And A, I knew it was an uphill fight because it was going to be the, the tour opener anyway, but um, I never could get tickets. And the thing, and the really annoying thing is when the record label gets these sets of tickets, they hold back and then they release them again at a later date. They don't announce when they release the tickets. Yeah. I hate that. Which, which is so, which is so annoying. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, I've had pretty, the, so the only one that I've had trouble with was the, the, the big, big major monolithic show that I, tried to get to but like smaller level shows or even like something on the level of Foo Fighters I didn't even have a problem with well, yeah. and, so and you know that the Springsteen eventually there'll be some kind of concert video and you'll be able to catch it yeah. anyway and and, yeah. and, and um, 
but let me just say something about but Springsteen like, is different at Springsteen. Oh no, I I, I understand. There are certain yeah. bands that you just like, you know, I'm glad I got to see Pink Floyd live once. Um yeah. once was plenty. Fucker. But you need to sorry. You, uh, sorry. Um but you need you need to kind of go and and there's certain bands you want to see once. And like the Tom Waits, even though it was a pain in the ass, I'm glad I got to be in the same zip code with Tom Waits. Um, and I'm fine with that. Um, but l- let me speak to that service charge thing that you were talking about, because I know a lot of people bitch about service charges. And my thing is that if there is a, um, first of all, I know folks got to make money. I appreciate that. So, but as long as there is some way in which I know that I am paying a few bucks for my life to be easier, I, I am, um, I am old enough now where I understand that I will pay five bucks to avoid something, you know, yeah. I, I think, I think we're all at, at that stage. So, but you know, if, if I'm paying five bucks and then it's more difficult or it's a pain in the ass, like you were experiencing Rob, yeah. and it's like, well, what the fuck is this money for? Or, but it's come to the point now where, you know, the, the, the service charges that used to be five or $7, are now five dollars for the seven for this ten for the you know yeah and that bothers me it and does. again like if I go to a local club and I don't mind uh, you know like the Fox Theater here in St Louis and I bet they do this in Atlanta too they say on their tickets a two dollar surcharge for every ticket goes towards restoration and upkeep I don't mind that you no. know no. I know where my money's going you know but I, I really hate the handling fee where it's like I'm, they're, they're, where I feel like they're double dipping. That 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 irritates me. Where there's sort a service of. charge, and then there's the charge for what they're going to do with your tickets. Yeah. Or or like, or here's my favorite is on a couple of occasions. For here's an extra, uh, we're going to charge you a dollar to let me print out the ticket at home. Yes. So yeah. wait a minute. So I'm saving you the cost of having to mail me a ticket. And having or have deal, someone hang on to it, or, ha, or or yeah, or have to pay someone to be at will call. I'm saving you that, and you're charging me for the privilege of saving you money. What? Yeah. Well, good. This makes me feel like this makes me feel better because I'm not the grumpy old man in the room as much as I thought I was. Oh no, no, great. no, no. We're 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 all different aspects of grumpy. We got the grumpy covered. No worries. Um, you know, and I love. I mean, I, I love going to local clubs and. My my basic rule of thumb is like when I'm in, if I'm in Atlanta and I go see a show like the Earl for example, that's a great place to see a show. There's a bunch of places I've never been there which I keep hearing are great, um, but like if I go to those places, you know I feel like I'm getting some sort of an experience because I can see the band. You know, if I turn around and the merch table and the bar are within you know 500 feet, that's awesome. You know I feel like. That's a communal music experience worth spending my money on. Now, if it's a show where I can, like, for example, get on a guest list, for example, and I go to a small bar, I make it a point so that that bar gets money to at least buy dinner. If they have a restaurant, I try to buy dinner there before the show or at least buy drinks so that in some way I'm they're getting some of my money because I, I understand that's important. But it's like literally um, – I'm so jaded and so fed up with the way the system works that I will go for free. Fuck you. I mean, I know that's horribly selfish, but it's like, you know, when Radiohead came here, for example, it was a memorable experience because some of the stuff they did at the concert, the stuff they hadn't done in a while, and I don't know how the hell it's happened. Tom York forgot the words to Karma Police, and it was pretty funny to see him sort of wiggle his way out of that. 
Um, and buying tickets for that show was particularly painless. But um, again, it, if the amount of time I'm spending to go see these big name artists, I want to feel like I'm buying a ticket. I don't want to feel like I'm paying for the privilege of buying a ticket. And I think that's the sort of fundamental thing that's gone down now. Um, and the industry, I think, has gotten so worried about people scalping ticket prices that they've created sort of this system of greed where, you know, you have to, like like you said, pay a dollar to print out your own ticket because, you know, that quote unquote helps fight piracy or whatever. You know, yeah. it's to the point where they've gotten so consumed that either one, they're so consumed about that they're not thinking straight or that's their blanket to fucking rape everybody. No, and that's what's happening. I have a problem with that. It's all about it's all about it's all about making more money. And yeah. And um, I mean, that that's that's part of the thing is it, it, it is it is entitlement in that. Well, we control this. So therefore, uh, we can charge what we like for it. And yeah. my thing is, if if you have a real problem with scalping, if then then one of two things is happening. Either there's too much demand for your supply, or you haven't priced your tickets right. Yeah, I mean, which I think they do too much. Well, well they price them wrong. Well, they, they, yeah, they price them wrong. So my thing is like from the from again to go back to the Tom Waits experience. He was trying to. The 50 words or less version was you could only buy two tickets and I had three people I wanted to take. And I, I, I had to I had to like, you know, lose one to go to the show. You had to show up in person to pick up the tickets with your ID and whatnot. So you couldn't show up at the show ready to go with them in your hand like you normally would on, you know, on Earth. Um, <clears throat> so I spent <laughs> I spent literally an hour and a half in line outside in the sun which i fucking hate um trying it was to... really the sun well, was the objection well i was standing up for an hour and a half on pavement where it's like you know this is ridiculous so my thing is tom i appreciate that you want to leave the tickets to be reasonably priced so that anyone can get in to see your show but fuck that shit i would rather pay you know, I don't even remember what the tickets cost, but let's let's assume they were thirty bucks. You know what? I'll pay sixty bucks to get out of that because I want to see you that badly. And my thing is, uh, you know, if if a lot of people if a lot of people are scalping your tickets and you were selling them for thirty and 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 they they're going for sixty, well, you're just pissed because you priced them wrong. You know, yeah. so get over it. Yeah, and I I hate that part of it, but I also hate the sort of Exclusivity of the pre-sales, I hate those. They drive me out of my mind. Um, I because there's nothing if, worse. I wouldn't hate them if I were in on them. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, no, I, but I generally to be clear. I have to admit, having having hacked away into a Janelle Monae fan club uh, sale uh, for tickets, um, I have to say that uh, if you could, and there are very easy ways to hack into the fan club sales things without actually being in the fan club. Um, so <laughs> toughly, toughly, we know you're in the fan club. It's good. You don't have to act. Like you have you to tell me this later, toughly. Um, <laughs> you don't have to act like you, you like pretended to be in the Janelle Monet. We know you're a card carrying member. This it's is cute. cute. I dude, okay. I no, I'm not arguing. There's nobody here. That's going to blame you for that whatsoever. Yeah. I'm it's just the saying. one direction fan club we're worried about. I know. I know. I'll have to talk <laughs> about that off, off cast. <laughs> but I mean, to me, like growing up when I was, Back when I was a little 
munchkin. If I wanted to go to a show, I just showed up and picked up tickets and went in. Or I called got, if it was on hold, if it was busy, I just called and called till I got tickets. Yeah. And nine out of ten times, I get tickets to most of the shows I wanted to. Yeah. But as the technology got easier, buying the tickets got harder. Which and is crazy. That just seems weird to me. Which is crazy. I know. I you know. Well- you know, though, I seem to remember, and which you may have had this experience, I remember when I lived in Alabama, it was easier to get WWE tickets than it was to get t- tickets to a show. Okay, let me just state for the record, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, no, but I never got them either, but I'm just saying. No, again, toughly. It was easier to get wrestling tickets than it was to get tickets to a damn no, toughly, show. toughly, just like the Janelle Monet fan club. If you're a wrestling fan. <laughs> There's no shame in that. I'm just saying I'm not. Okay, that's all. That's all I'm saying. Uh, that was, was, the, greatest, that was the greatest not. first sentence ever in the history of the Soundboard podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that doesn't count the Sports Center in the outtakes. Um... But no, I, I mean, it, it was the thing. You, you, we, we hardly ever had anybody come through Alabama. Yeah. You're either going to Nashville or Atlanta. Um, yeah. And you would just have to call and call and call until you got through. And then you got your tickets. And that was it. And that was basically yeah. it. You picked them up when you got there. You went in. You saw the show. You were done. And it was it was a good thing. You didn't have any of this pre-sale crazy nonsense. You didn't have – and I, and I felt like I was getting more for my money back then than I am now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I think I think part of it is – part of it is maybe – Maybe I'm old now because I will say this that it like when when you have something like a like Lollapalooza's used to tour, but when you have these these tours that come through that they're festival tours that we've talked about to a great extent, you know, the idea of sitting on the lawn used to be fun, and so the idea of just being there and sort of drinking in the atmosphere and the people and the music that used to be great. Like you know, yeah. I drove five hours to go see a Lollapalooza because. Uh, you know, Rage Against the Machine was was pretty much, um, oh, you know, opening for Metallica, and I thought, oh, well, when Metallica hits the stage, I'll have plenty of time to get to my car and be gone and avoid the traffic. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm just older now, and and the concept of comfort, and the fact well, that I I have well, a worn out chair. Well, yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, you have to understand though that like the Lollapalooza then was you'd go and you'd have a day of maybe six or seven bands. So it wasn't, you know, it was like an eight-hour day, six to eight-hour day, as opposed to like twelve hours with five stages of running all over East Jesus. Well, I was so, going to say mean, that was that was the Metallica year. Was that like did that did was that when they bumped it to two days? No, yeah. no, it was a one day. It okay, was one day. Yeah, when they did a one day, they got like a lot of really great bands, put them in. The side stages were like maybe four or five good bands. That was it. It was a no-brainer. It wasn't like trying to go through a computer conference with fifty different tracks of programming. Uh, because you've got, you know, this date, then over here you've got this, 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 and that. I mean, it was much leaner and thinner and clear-cut. And those Lollapalooza, those first round of Lollapalooza tours, I mean, they just made sure that you had bands that even if you didn't like, you were even at least, if you had to sit through them, weren't numbed out of your mind, you know. Um, And maybe you learned something. So I think there is something to be said about, you know, if you drove to see Lollapalooza, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it's different than going to a festival now where it's just they beat you over the head with it. And the bands played longer, too, I think, at those. So I think Rage here played like an hour and 10 minutes on that tour. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, but yeah, that's kind of what 
that's kind of what I'm thinking too. It's like, you know, if you, at a time when record sales are down, at a time when people aren't buying music, you're making buying live music a pain in the ass. I don't understand this. Well, I think part of it is, I think the promoters figured out what the bands figured out a long time ago, which was you could actually make more money touring. And the promoters have decided, okay, well, we need to get some of our money in too. Okay. Well, which is fine, but I mean, uh, and again, it's it's an agony to revenue ratio in yeah. that I don't mind paying if I'm having a good experience. If I pay and I come out of that going, oh, man, it was fucking fantastic. That was great. Then I don't think back about your $2, $5, $7 service charge. Yeah. To me, that was just part of it. But like to speak to Rob's experience, to pay that, to pay $95, if I'm paying $95 for fucking anything. It better be spectacular. It it better yes. come home with me and rotate my tires and Simonize my fucking car for ninety five dollars. <laughs> and the fact the fact that they're the fact that that's a big ticket item and they don't want you on your cell phone and they don't. I mean, for, okay, fine. If if I'm approaching the counter and I'm on my cell phone, tell me to fuck off because people who are on their cell phone while they're trying to do business that's just that's rude. Okay, yeah. but. But if I've entered the room and you don't want me on the cell phone, because how am I going to scalp a ticket while I'm talking on the cell phone? Am I, am but, I talking to my uh, get get the getaway car ready? I'm about to get the tickets. That makes your no day trading. If you're at the window and you're buying tickets, and let's say it's a concert Cosette wants to go to with you, and it's important where you sit. Yes, is in terms of like pricing. Like, okay, we can pay seventy five dollars and sit here, honey, or we can spend a hundred here or whatever. What do you think? You know, if you can't do that on a phone. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, that is, to me, the practical use that 9 out of 10 people are doing with the phone. Is they're talking to the other person who's buying tickets and saying, do you want to sit here? Particularly because the ticket I was buying for is a show my, my, my spouse wanted to see more than me. It was really important to get seat because this is for her, you know. Mostly, how you get the tickets that are going to work, you know, I don't care. Just fucking put me in a chair for two hours and let me be. Let me be. But... If it's something she really wants to go to, and you know, sometimes we go, sometimes we do go to concerts we don't like for our women. It's just a fact of life. Unless it's the Indigo Girls, run like hell. But, um, <laughs> um you know, there, I, you have to be able to talk to somebody there, on the phone. I'm sorry, what? There's an Indigo Girls story there, Rob. That that we should go into I, in a later podcast. Yeah, I, th- I think that's going to be the one-off Indigo Girls special. No, no, it's just <laughs> the, 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 the basic uh, tenure of this is that every time I, I've known anyone who's gone to one of their shows that was not a female, they have not been treated well. So it's been very much a uh, made clear that they're not welcome. So I have no desire to have to experience that. I get that in my daily life all the time. So... Well. Um, <laughs> that's the short end of that story. But I think you should be able to like, if you're spending that kind of an investment of money in this economy, you should be able to talk to the other person. Maybe they're at work or, you know, or maybe they're at home with the kids or something. You should say, this is what we're going to spend our money on. This is how much it costs. What do you think? It shouldn't have to be, fl- there shouldn't be any element of flying blind involved in buying tickets. You know, it should be able to like, I'm buying this ticket. This is where we're going. Boom, done. You know, um, and now, particularly when some for some shows, when they sell tickets to an arena and you're sitting behind the stage, I don't ever want to sit behind a stage at a large venue. That just sucks. Yeah. You know, even if it's Springsteen, you know, 
But like well, I, when I saw the when I saw the Arcade Fire, we sat on the side of the stage, but down a little, so we could still see the full stage. But yeah. I could tell the people that were behind the stage, and I think that was the venue that opened up those seats, not the band. Yeah, you could tell that they were struggling with it, and the band was making an effort to get move around and go see those people. But yeah. um, to me, that's just asinine. Don't sell seats where people can't see the fucking show. That's and actually, why. Foo Fighters did the same thing. Because they had noticed there were people back on the other side, so they were trying to play to the people in the back. Yeah, and um, you know, to me, that's to me that's fraud. If you're selling a ticket to someone, and you know they're going to have a shitty seat, your your responsibility as a ticket seller is to make sure that they have. And I know this is an idyllic, stupid dream, but I would think your idea. You know, if I'm selling tickets to the show and someone wants to buy tickets, and they tell me, "Am I going to be able to see the stage? Or are these good seats?" I would honestly tell them. These are not good seats, but you're going to be able to hear the band, you know, do you want these? Let's try to find something else. Make that the last resort. And if you decide that you want to sit there, great. That's on you. But you shouldn't have to be told that that's the best available when there's not. Now, when you buy them online, and I've noticed this for a couple of venues here, and, and I don't know if would you, if you've noticed this or anything, but they, a couple of venues now that you go to, you can actually get a shot of the seats and the actual view from the seats. I love that. You know, yeah, that, I think that's, that's one nice thing about buying tickets online is if I'm going to get, if you're going to punch me in the head four times at four different service charges, show me what the view from my seat's going to look like. Yeah. yeah. I, I know that I, I you know, sort of live music ass, but, but I have bought uh, Cirque du Soleil tickets where yeah. you can literally say, well, here's what the section looks like uh, for the most part. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's I cool. think the Fox does it. And I think Phillips does it. No, now to be that. fair with, to be fair with Cirque du Soleil, every single thing about – because I'm in the same boat where I've bought tickets to several other shows. Yeah. Every single thing about buying tickets for them and, – and their tickets are expensive for yeah. the most part. Oh, yeah, they are. But oh, every yeah. if you want an example of how to buy a ticket that's done right, every single aspect of it – like I bought tickets from them over the phone, um, and the woman on the phone explained to me what this – like there's a charge for this fee, this fee, this fee. This is what it goes to. This is what it goes to. I didn't feel like – patronized and insulted when I got off the phone buying tickets with them. I felt like they were trying to be informative and helpful. When I bought tickets online, I could see where the tickets were. When I went to a box office and bought tickets the day of the show, because I ended up having a day off for, for one of the shows, yeah. they, they couldn't have been more helpful at the box office at all. You know, I remember saying they're like, these tickets are available. I said, well, I'd really like to be kind of over here. And instead of just saying, well, no, this is the best I have, I'm sorry, she said, if you can wait two seconds, let me call somebody and see if something's opened up. I'm mean, just little things like that. Yeah. Um, to me, that is probably one of the best ticketing experiences I've had is buying tickets for Cirque du Soleil, which I would never have expected because of the sheer amount of volume that they do right. for ticket sales. Um, well, it's it's basically. But don't a company, they have their own? Don't they have their own ticket people for that? Though? I believe I believe they do. But yeah, but but basically, what what's happened is you're seeing. I mean, Rob, you're absolutely right in that they are they are the example to follow because here is a company that realizes, you know, we make money from you folks. Therefore, we should treat you right so that you come back and spend more money with us. What a yeah. weird concept that is for a lot of these venues and ticket bastard and these other people. Who, who, you know, c c compare yeah. and contrast that experience that we've had with Cirque with your experience with trying to spend $95 and getting nothing but shit every but single – to be fair, Cirque does have a return – have does have a product that, that they it, – it's worthwhile for them to have a return investment. 
because 90% of their audience will go to another Cirque du Soleil show, and they know that. So they go out of their way doing that. But if they knew that this was the one show that they were going to have and they were going to have no more, that experience might be different. You know? well, but, 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 but I would say, Rob, I would counter that, and I would say that one of the reasons why Tuffley and I like going back to Variety Playhouse is because we went and we've had good experiences there, and we know that when we go, we're going to have a good experience. Yeah. So it's yeah. so it's and it doesn't matter who we go see there. I mean, because I've seen yeah. Ben Folds there, I've seen Henry Rollins there, and I've seen you know Jonathan Colton and Paul and Storm there. So so there is a repeat. You you have repeat customers for the musicians, but you good. also have repeat customers for the venues themselves. Yeah, because there's a venue here that's a fairly large music venue that I go to. Yeah. That the box office staff is usually pretty okay. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those. I mean, it's probably you know. It's a it's a theater that's got like you know the upper balcony seats and the and the floor is like mostly general admission but they have a couple seats back by the bar you know your typical kind of every city has one of those but their box office people are usually you know pretty okay and they're usually pretty forthright in what their ticketing is the other thing that I do like which is a disappearing beast of the industry is a lot of places do the thing that like, okay, if you buy the tickets online or over the phone, these are all the surcharges you're going to pay. But if you walk down and buy tickets at the venue, you don't pay these surcharges. Or if you buy your tickets in cash, you don't pay these surcharges. And that to me is a nice option. That's, you know, all I want, one is full disclosure. And two, I want it to be fucking easy. I don't want it to be like trying to get a flight to Uzbekistan to buy a concert ticket. I mean, that's all I really want, and I'm just surprised at how hard it's gotten to be and how disingenuous it almost is because when you think about the idea of seeing – we talked about this a little bit you know, uh, when we talked about Dick Clark. The idea of seeing an artist or you know, experiencing music is a pretty powerful and cool thing. So if you're going to invest a lot of time and energy in going to see that, they need to, they need to sort of respect what that connection with that artist is for every person buying their ticket. You know, that you know, could be because, you know, but, someday it's just going to be people's holograms. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean someday? That day is here. Actually, what's, you know, what's hilarious really is the... what's hilarious is I remember when uh, I went with my dad to see Lionel Richie in concert and uh, they they trotted out a holographic screen I it was holographic ish, I guess, with Diana Ross on it, so that they could do their duet together. So, so they get through Truly. Yeah, they brought out a screen for Truly. Yeah. Oh, endless love. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> you corrected yourself, and then I corrected yourself. myself. Yeah, I know. Wow. Well, you know, Suffly, that wasn't a hologram; it was real. They wanted, to, wanted you to think it was a hologram because he's actually came out of witness protection for one day. I was, I was thinking, I was thinking they were going to bring out the holographic screen so he could do like a duet with the bus from Hello. <laughs> <God>. oh. <laughs> oh. Ow! Ouch! Uh, so, but yeah, I where think were we fundamentally. <laughs> I didn't mean to derail us with Diana Ross and. I don't know the uh, the domino okay. trading card. It's okay. Um, I didn't even really look past the fu- the fact that you saw Lionel Richie. Um, I went with my dad. I know. I'm just I kidding. Was young. A, I was young. I couldn't drive. I anywhere. would go. See, no, I would do the same thing. I'm just giving you a hard time. 
It's fine. <laughs> you don't have to explain. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Okay. All right. I've seen plenty of hideous artists with other people too, so it's perfectly fine. <laughs> so you know, uh, I've seen new shoes for God's sakes. I, can, I'm in no position to bitch. So. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. It's okay. I went with a date to see uh, to see the, the the mall tour with Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. So I'm in no position to bitch. Oh. <laughs> I laughed my way through it. I think oh. I almost got kicked out of that too, but I can't remember. Oh, anyway, anyway, um, wow. you're a rebel. Shut up. Anyway, um, I just think so. The idea of seeing, I mean, there's, to me, there's two levels of, of going to a concert. There's the, you know, seeing the band actually live and, you know, getting the joy of like, wow, I'm seeing a band I really like and this is cool and, and all of that. But then there's the experience of like getting the ticket to go see the band. So like in, in a real world, you go get your ticket, you're excited. You're like, wow, I'm going to get to see Tom. I was like this with Leonard Cohen. I, you know, I went and got my ticket. Oh my God, I'm actually going to see Leonard Cohen. This is pretty incredible. I'm going to see Leonard friggin' Cohen, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you spend a yeah. month really excited that you're going to see Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And then you see Leonard Cohen and it's incredible. And yep. it's perfect. Yep. And then you have the little after event of like, wow, that was really cool. You so know? let me ask you a question about that because you saw Len Cohen in another country, correct? Yeah. Well, both. Okay. I've seen him here. At, yeah. Okay. But but where is 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 the hassle of the buying of the tickets that just a did you have a problem buying the tickets when you went to see the Leonard Cohen thing? To be, to be fair, the buying the tickets in Vienna, the buying the buying Leonard Cohen tickets in Vienna was complicated, not by the ticket buying process. But by the fact that tickets to David Hasselhoff in concert was the same day, oh. I got to the to the ticket window, and there's a line of people, and I said, "Wow, there's a lot of people here to get Leonard Cohen tickets. They must have released a lot of tickets." And they said, "No, they released Hasselhoff tickets, which is for the show across the street." So I got to see Cohen in a beautiful opera house, but Hasselhoff played the opera house where Mozart's Don Giovanni premiered. That's the world we live in, but. Um, to answer like your question, way. they had a little map. You know, it, it's kind of like when you go to the small place, they have a map. Like, this is section one, section two, section three. Here is yeah. where your seats are, roughly. Um, yeah. Is that okay? And then they had a fee. It's like, we charge, you know, a five euro fee for buying the tickets, but that was because we had to buy the software and this helps us pay for the upkeep of the software. And yeah. that's why we have it. But they made it a point to tell me. And the guy who sold me the tickets was so nice that I didn't mind. Okay, because the reason I asked this question I wasn't is... another herd of sheep, and I wasn't like – it wasn't like there was like the post office where I'm taking a number, and they're just winding me through the mill, you know? The, the reason I, I asked this question is because that, you know, in other countries, because we get – because basically in this country, it's basically Ticketmaster. Even if you're dealing with Live Nation, Live Nation yeah. and Ticketmaster are now the same beast. When you go overseas – there are there is competition in addition to Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of why I was wondering because I well, I mean, uh, and I have no idea who who does it because they have all these different. You look at them like, who the hell is this? You know, what is yeah. the first ticket or what is you know? Um, and there are, but the thing is, there is I think more of the booking agents have more of a hand say in, in the buying the tickets. I think it's a different mm -hmm. structure. But uh, and I have no idea what it's like buying tickets in Japan, but. Um, you know, again, I have to send you to Japan for that. No, I think that's a, I think that's a field trip that you know we all need to go to, <laughs> um, and with, with an expense account. Um, but I think that 
you know, all I think all the universally, all anyone buying a ticket anywhere in the world, all they really want is for the experience of buying tickets not to feel like they are being probed by some sort of rectal probe that's painful. I think that's all they really want. You know, it should your colonoscopy should not be more fun than buying tickets to a show. <laughs> and that's the quote of the show. You know. <laughs> Um, or as when I was buying these tickets, the woman, uh, three people in front of me who I saw when I was leaving, she's like, wow, going to my dino was more fun than that. And I'm like, okay, it's not just me, you know, <laughs> I'm like, ouch, you know, and you know, I think there is a, I, I think if you buy a ticket to a show and the process of buying the, the tickets to it is such a pain in the ass. That if that is a bad experience, you're not really going into the concert with a pleasant mindset. Now, you know, I think I think what you, your thing with Tom Waits was like where it was such you had to jump through so many hoops. Did you know you had to jump through all those hoops before you got into the show? You did, right? No, no. Well, I did, but I didn't. What I, I did not expect the like hour and a half wait. Yeah. To get the tickets, and and, but, and because of that, let me just throw this out. Because of that, the show started. Like forty five minutes, I think it was even more than that. Late, yeah. So, so we were also stressed because we were thinking, "Oh my, are you, is he going to start?" I mean, we're we're in the parking lot. We can't get in. Yeah. Is he going to start? Um, and, yeah. and 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 it kind of was worse once I found out that it was all his idea. Um, that that really kind of just made me go, "Really? Oh fuck." Yeah. Well, well, here's here's my question: Is okay? We've established that. At least in this country, it's Ticket Bastard. You've got Live Nation, which is in essence Ticket Bastard. You've got certain venues like you know Variety Playhouse where you have choices, but for the most part, I don't know eighty, ninety percent of your venue choices are Ticketmaster. So how do we fix it? You know, you fix it by getting on the fucking guest list. <laughs> which I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm a horrible step one, person. Step one, get a music blog or or a radio show. Step two, become very, very slightly popular. No, I'm, I'm not too popular. popular, but slightly popular. <laughs> so, no. so, so this is what we've learned, dear listeners, is that you should either get on the guest list or quote unquote hack your way onto the fan club. <laughs> well, no, the system has frustrated us so long, and. That you know, thing is actually slightly cooler than hacking. I mean, honestly, honestly, Widge, it's like it's like going to a restaurant. Why would I want to pay money to go here when I can go here and it's cheaper? It's it's that sort of mentality. No, I agree. And well, here's what I would I would say is that what what you need to do is if you have some place in your town, dear listeners, where uh, that is like the equivalent for you of of Variety Playhouse for us here in Atlanta, Tuffley and myself. Where you know that if you go, you're going to have a decent time. You're going to pay a decent price. They're not going to screw you out of house and home. Um, go there. And if there's a place where you know that if you go, that you're not going to have a good time, don't go there. And then, if, yeah. you know, and, and your vote may not count for much on its own because I don't think we're going to take down Ticket Bastard at all because there are, there are going to be. You know, it's been tried. <laughs> it's been tried, but but not even just that. I mean, it's it's the almighty dollar that eventually takes people down, and not you know lawsuits and 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 government intervention and stuff like that. Uh, eventually, people get sick of it, and and they have to adjust. But my take on it would be that 
Um, and, and there's always going to be some big band that's going to come in through some large venue and you're going to want to go, whether it's the Pink Floyd or the Radiohead or whatever else. But, but I would just say pick and choose where you go and, yes. and what you go see and what you spend your money on. Uh, and, and, and think of Rob when, when you're dealing with these folks and go, wait a minute, how much money am I fucking spending in here? <laughs> I will have my seating chart. Thank you. And you can go fuck yourself. You know, I hate to be like that, but I mean, I hate to be like that with the guest list thing too, but really, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't be bitching about it. I really shouldn't. It's, it's, it's asinine that I'm bitching about this, but. Although if you can get on a guest list though. No, no. No, I mean, it's, my, yeah. Well, well, let me just say, there, there, never feel bad about justifiably bitching about okay. spending a lot of money. That would be my thing. What you, the moment oh, yeah. you said I'm spending ninety five dollars on this, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" I would have been saying something. But I mean, too. to be fair, there's people that spend you know money for every show they want to go to, whereas like I will spend large amounts of money for a show maybe once a year, as opposed to some people do it five or six, and I'll either get on a list for a smaller show or something. I shouldn't be bitching about this. No, no, no. My I, I my card you, for bitching should be taken away. No, no. I I, I would disagree because as now here's here's where your card gets taken away. If you go to the show for free and you bitch about the free show, those people are bastards. Okay, yeah. I mean, man, I, the catering sucked. Oh God, those 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 free lobster tails. Those were way overdone. Oh, they don't have that. No, it doesn't work that no, way no, no, anymore. You know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? It's 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 if you're if you were bitching about you know the 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 place at the small venue that you paid fifteen dollars to get into and you spent more time and energy yeah. bitching than you actually spent in money to get the tickets yeah. that's bad bitching I about mean, free tickets getting, is bad but, but yeah like if i'm getting tickets for example then, then see, you bitch bitch yeah. as much as you want man yeah most of the time too it's a general admission ticket so i can go try to figure out where i'm going yeah but if i'm going to like a large venue and they give me free tickets for example and their nosebleeds I've lost the right to bitch because I got free nosebleed tickets. Yeah. That's not seriously. on me. No, that's, really. you know, kind of how I view it. Um, and, but I mean, realistically, I try to think of like, you know, yes, I get on a list for this. And for the, you know, for the sake of full disclosure, there's a lot of this stuff I go to for free. But that doesn't mean I can't sympathize for the poor fucker that has to pay for that, you know? Um, and when I do have to pay, you know, I, maybe it's so more glaring to me because I do it so so very little. I mean, part of it is I can't afford to go to all the shows. If I wanted to pay to every show I'd go to, I'd be I wouldn't have a house. So um, that's part of it. You know, it's it's kind of you know the the experience of seeing live music has gotten to be more expensive than it used to be ten or fifteen years ago. The pricing has gotten unjustifiably insane. You know, I I don't think if you're going to a small medium-sized venue, I don't see paying more than 30 bucks to see an artist. You know, um, I think the tickets here for M83 are like 45 or 50 bucks. And I'm like, really? Come on. Uh, to me, that's a little, little nuts. You know, uh, the the Black Lips are playing with the Arctic Monkeys, and the tickets, I think, are like 60, 35, and like 30. Which... The 65, I think, is a little unreasonable, but 35, I think, is about right. You know, I cap out at about 40 for a show. But if I'm paying $95 for one ticket, right, and I'm going with my wife, that's a sizable fucking investment for yeah, me. Yeah, it is. Make my experience worth it. 
you know. Um, and it has to be somebody you both like, because if you're spending ninety dollars, you know, if you're spending a huge <laughs> amount of money to go to a concert, yeah. Know, well, I mean, like because, we're sitting, like know, for example, we're going to we're um, going to go see we're going to go see Madonna, right? Yeah. I have more. I have a. She really wants to go. I have kind of a passing interest in it because one, I've never seen her. She's never played here, and two, I'm kind of interested in how she's going to transfer the music live. And some of her records I like, so it's not going to be like miserable for me to go, right? Yeah. But if I'm paying night, and that's a level of thing where somebody is more of an entertainer than a performer. For example, Leonard Cohen tickets were seventy five dollars when I saw him here, but I felt like I got every dime of it when I saw him. Yeah, he played for three and a half hours. He did forty minutes of reading poetry, and he did four encores. I felt like I mean, it was unworldly, and I felt like I got I felt in no way, shape, or form gypped. Can I tell you, Foo Fighters played for four hours. Yeah, the Foo Fighters show, that's another example of a band I paid money to go see. And when I saw them, I had only passingly heard the new record. I haven't heard much off the new record, right? And it was great to go see them and not hear, not know the material as well as I probably would for other artists and still be as pleased with the show. And they did like three Pink Floyd covers. Yeah. Nice. I remember, you know, I paid $25 to see Godspeed, you Black Emperor, and they played for, I think, 45 minutes, but it was 45 fucking incredible minutes, and I wasn't yeah. mad, you know? Yeah, but, but that's, um, that's like one song for them, though. <laughs> well, this was right after the first record, even. This wasn't oh, even okay. before. This is in a venue which was 150 people. Okay, yeah, I can understand that. So it was pretty incredible. And I've seen them since when they've gotten bigger and they play longer, but yeah. Um you know, and I and I and that I think was that, their first album. That's all they had was the one song of the first album. No wonder they only played forty five minutes. God damn, <laughs> the shortest song by them I have on my iTunes is twenty. Isn't that minutes. their first single? Yeah, yeah, that was that was the single edit. That was what's crazy. But you have to remember, me. though. I you know <laughs> this is the first we, song. We rode in a car for six hours when I was in high school. We rode in a car for six hours and spent I think twenty five dollars, which in nineteen eighty six money was a lot. They go see the Jesus and Mary chain in Chicago, walk out on stage with their backs turned to the audience, play for 11 minutes, and walk off. Holy <laughs> shit! But apparently they did that. Yes. It's nice to know that now. <laughs> you know, you really needed, you really needed uh, the, the internet then so that you could look it up and go, wait, what? Wait, but it was pretty, you know what though? It was pretty great because the sheer look of people's faces, like, really? But it was like balls to the wall and you just sort of dropped the guitar. I mean, it was the way that they pulled it off with attitude that really sort of made the whole experience memorable, you know? Um, so yeah, but the, you know, you go see, there's some artists that you go pay tons of money to see and it's worth it. Now, I, I paid, I think 65 bucks to see Emmylou Harris. And I remember thinking, I'm really paying $65 to see Emmylou Harris, but it was fucking great. You know, um, there's stuff like that that happens, you know, and I think that you could, but you could still sell if you're, if you're a promoter or a ticket person, you could still price tickets to a show to be expensive, but just don't pile on and then don't make it so they're jumping through hoops so like okay great i know where i'm sitting i know where i'm going i know what i'm getting end of the story boom we're done you know it's not that hard to do but i think where i get pissed off 
and I just want to scream, and I imagine other people are, is that like we've talked about all the different handling charges, we've talked about the internet pre-sales, that it's just so um, blatantly that they don't give a shit. That's the thing that bothers me the most. It's like, you know, you walk up to the window, it's like, well, there's no good tickets. No, there's not. There's an internet pre-sale. I'm sorry. You should have probably checked to see if there was an internet pre-sale, or I guess you should have joined Ticketmaster's online thing so you would have known about it. You should have hacked a fan club. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, don't be snide, okay. and that really bothers me more than anything else, because not everybody's able to do that, you know? Um, and it's fine if, you know, these places want to do like a, like, there are some small venues, um, like the, there's a venue here, for example, it's probably similar to your Variety Playhouse, where they'll have internet pre-sale for people that are like on their email newsletter, Right. But if I go there to buy tickets for the show and it's sold well and they did an internet pre-sale, they don't say, well, I guess you shouldn't have had about the pre-sale. You know, it's not like somebody you just want to punch in the face. You know, to me, by getting, using our second WWE reference of the show, I shouldn't want to put somebody in a headlock when I do business with them to buy a ticket. You know, it shouldn't be like I want to pummel somebody, you know, when, when I buy a ticket. It shouldn't be like that. And They shouldn't be trying to make you want to tap out is what you're saying. Yeah, that's our third wrestling reference. Yes, uh, Aaron would be so proud. But uh, I think that you know the problem with it is, is that they they are so arrogant about selling the tickets, and they're so shameless in just their greed with it. I mean, that's my perception of it anyway. Um, and it's not again, it's not every ticket buyer because there's lots of good, hardworking. Uh, ticket agencies that you know try to make tickets affordable for people, and there are a lot of good people that work in box offices. This is by no means a blanket across the, the board indictment of them. But um, and you you listen to the, to the podcast, you know who we're talking about, and who we're not based on your own city because you'll be able to draw your own experiences. But you shouldn't leave buying a ticket feeling like you know you've burdened somebody or put them out in buying a ticket for a show you want to go see. And I think the sort of callousness and cavalier of the industry is what really bothers me right now about it, about the process of buying tickets. I think that's the thing that really gets my surface going with it. So maybe if it went back to treating you more like an individual experience instead of McDonald's. Yeah. I think that's, you know, yeah. which it shouldn't be to begin with. I mean, it, it, surely it can be done. I mean, it's it's not that hard. I mean, even if people are buying more and more people are buying tickets on the internet now anyway. So you would think that if most of the people are buying tickets off the internet, um, it's a lot of, you have more time to spend with people, you know, but me, you know, the, the argument they made was like, well, when you go buy tickets off the internet, it tells you these are the first available, doesn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And then if I say, I have a, I said, but there's also a screen where I can say, would you like to try other seats? And I can click on that and choose with my luck to get better seats elsewhere. I have that option online. Why don't I have it at the box office? You know? Yeah, you that, have the option to take as long as you want online. It's just that you have to, you know, you have 10 minutes to get, get those tickets or they get released. Yeah, and the market sort of dictates what's available. I get that. You know, I just want there to be a loving, I want there to be a level playing field, and I don't want people to act like, you know, it's kind of like when you were in school and all the and all the kids that had like cool toys first and all that stuff are like, well, we've got this nan and that, you know, maybe we'll let you in. And the exclusivity of it is really what's irritating, you know. You're selling a product, I get it, but don't music almost shouldn't be treated as a product. It is now. It's in too many ways. That's what's killing it. Um, 
And it's what killed the record store, I think, is that they got so consumed with selling music as a product that they lost sight of how to do customer service and make people want to go there. It's the same thing's happening to the ticket industry. It's to the point now, like Wid said, where like I could watch this on Amazon, I could do go I could, you know, go to a Fathom event if it's on a Fathom screen somewhere and watch it, or I can just wait till the DVD comes out because inevitably it will. Why am I doing this? You know, um, I, I, I would venture to guess that almost every band now puts out a DVD after every tour of something, usually. Um, so they need to realize that they have options. I don't think these people realize that there's other options for people out there. You well, can for go quite on a YouTube. few bands, for quite a few bands, you could buy a DVD of the show you were just at. Yeah. Uh, or even an audio recording. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, the other thing that's interesting though too is that if you go to YouTube now and you're willing to spend the time, you can literally, literally find a whole concert, show by show, just by watching it in clips. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah, and, that's easy to do. Yeah, which is like until the band or somebody realizes it, and then they take it down. But you know, I highly recommend if someone wants to go see a band and they and the, and the show is sold out and they feel bad, you know, starting the night at like an hour after that show ends, go online. YouTube that favorite band, type in, you know, if you're, if you want to go see Ministry in Little Rock, for example, and it's sold out, go to YouTube, type in, you know, Ministry Little Rock 2012, see what comes up, and you can watch like half the damn show, you know? Um, and as long as those kind of alternatives are out there for people, people like Ticketmaster and Live Nation and all these things need to sort of realize that the, their days of being the only game in town are greatly greatly numbered because i think we just talked about or toughly talked about holograms i don't think we're very far from the the day when a band's going to be in one place do a concert and you can buy a download instead of a ticket to sort of log in and then be able to watch it from anywhere in the world i think that's what it's coming to you know and they'll sort of control where the camera angles are and you'll get to see the con it'll be like when you're at the concert and you're watching the watching them on the screen that's what I think it's going to get to at some point. But, you know, they p- people need to realize there's options, and it's a business, and we'll take it elsewhere. And it just, or, it just drives me nuts. Or even it's not it's not even a case of a band doing a concert somewhere. It could be something like the Radiohead broadcast where, you know, they're somewhere in a studio in a controlled setting, and they're playing live, and they're just going to beam it out. Yeah. Well, even um, – And you can sell but- tickets to that. Yeah, I mean, like Pulp played at Coachella, and they posted the whole concert on the internet. Yeah. You know, which, oh my God, I'm really happy I didn't spend money for that ticket now. Um, and well, Which uh, and one? Then, the, the, the one last week or the one this week? Cause uh, the they, one last they, week. Okay. At the end of the show, they handed out candies, and like chocolate candies and mints to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the show. Um yeah, and I think Madness most of their most of their stuff went up online as well. So like, boom, two of the big bands I wanted to see, I got to sort of at least see chunks of it without having to go sweat in the sun with five thousand other people. You know? Yeah, I saw the so, Pulp set, the Radiohead set, and the uh, and the Madness set, and the special set, I think too. Yeah, I mean, I know we're old, but still, it doesn't mean that we should be um, singled out from the concert experience with you know by crappy customer service and stuff. But I think, you know, um, I, I'm very jealous of Widge's outlook on it because I wish I could make the disconnect enough 
to just say, I'm staying the fuck at home. I'm not going out. But I'm so, I, I so like going to see live music that it's really tricky, you know? So, you know, I almost, it's almost a really good therapy for us to say, you know, which would miss this show. I can live with it. Yeah, so. You just have, you haven't gotten screwed over enough, Rob. Oh, well, I have. Oh, well, yeah. no, well, not enough though. Still? Not enough. <laughs> we could sell, we could sell armbands for that. What would Widge do? Oh God, no! no. Don't, let's not no. ask that question. No, we're not. That's a, that's a dangerous question, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that unless you guys have anything else, I think that pretty much summarizes our, uh, um, let's just say, somewhat strong opinion on uh, buying tickets for your favorite concerts as our big topic for the soundboard. Um, you guys have anything else on those? On that? I ended with a marketing idea, so I, I'm good. Okay, Wiz, you got anything else? I ended with re- with revulsion at his marketing idea, so I'm good. <laughs> um, so finally, we should mention too, um, and it would only be right to end, to end with this way. Uh, again, if you like the soundboard, please tell your friends uh, on Facebook, Twitter, uh, any stumble upon any media outlet that you know of uh, for online marketing. Please spread the word about soundboard to your friends or maybe antagonize your neighbors. Uh, also, if we've mentioned any artists that you're interested in or any things that perhaps would make you think, oh, I want to go see that Muse DVD, that would be a good idea, you can go to Amazon.com, both in the U.S. and in Britain at Amazon.co.uk, uh, through the Need Coffee website and order the things that you want. Um, there's nothing like talking about Record Store Day and then you going online and buying the stuff from Record Store Day online. Nothing strikes live, back against the man. Buy a live DVD. There you go. Yeah. Not live TV. Um, but yeah. So yeah, we, we encourage you to use that. Um, and again, we're all on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And my radio show, Juxtaposition, you can like that on, on Facebook. And Tuffley, what are you up to with the world of radio works? Um, actually, we, we've kind of suspended that for a while due to pending legislation. So um, in the meantime, I'm putting out uh, 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 playlists on Spotify. So yeah, that's the other cool thing is, is lots and you know, lots of Spotify playlists. That was our first reference to Spotify in the soundboard this week. We almost had our first Spotify free podcast. I snuck one um, in earlier. Don't worry. What now? I, I snuck a reference in earlier. Don't worry. Oh, you did earlier. Okay, I apologize. Um, that's okay. I wasn't listening to me either. <laughs> and again, needcoffee.com. Um, Widget is the chief bottle washer at Head Honcho. It's his living and his livelihood. So please support it in any way that you can. Uh, you could buy it through iTunes, for example, and uh, tell all your friends. So yeah, please and, do so. And, and and Rob, let me just let me just say for for those people who want to uh, use Amazon uh, and buy stuff that you were going to buy anyway through Amazon and throw a few coins at us, you can use this handy link: needcoffee.com/slash/amazon. Uh, or if you're across the pond, you can do slash Amazon UK, and that will take you right to the front page of Amazon, like nothing untoward had happened and nothing had because you're simply helping out a website yeah. and a and a podcast that you like. so and and bookmark it like i did so yeah. that it just comes up and it's second nature that's your friend yeah so for this edition of the soundboard i am thankfully no longer sitting in the big boy chair yay for another three months uh i'm rob and uh for toughly and widget walls please have yourself a great week thanks for listening